House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. On this 17th day of February, 1801, the members of the House are about to try again to elect a President of the United States. Soon they will take the 36th ballot and hope this time to break the six-day deadlock between Jefferson and Aaron Burr. Jefferson is still one state short of the required nine-state majority, and unless he's elected on this 36th ballot, the events of the past few days indicate that violence and bloodshed will descend on this infant's capital. The 16 tellers appointed by the Speaker of the House will poll their states. Then they will drop the vote in the two ballot boxes provided by the Sergeant at Arms. The vote Washington, reported to February 17, 1801. The House of Representatives, you are there. CBS takes you back 147 years. It is less than a generation since the end of the revolution which established the United States of America. It's 2.30 p.m. on Sunday, October 31, 1948. We're tuned into WCBS in New York. On the air is You Are There. Created by Goodman Ace, it blended history with modern technology, taking an entire network newsroom back in time. On Halloween in 1948, the episode centered around the U.S. presidential election of 1800. 1801, the gallery of the House of Representatives and John Daly. This dramatic deadlock has come about in spite of the fact that Jefferson received the majority of the popular vote. A group of willful men in the Federalist Party, losers in the popular vote, are still trying desperately to block the people's choice. A tie in the Electoral College through this election into the House of Representatives, and here the Federalists are still hoping to elect Aaron Burr when he was meant to be Jefferson's running mate on the successful Democratic-Republican ticket. They think of Aaron Burr a lesser evil than Thomas Jefferson. And now, on the 36th ballot, they're still pushing... The first U.S. election to have formally nominated party tickets. It pitted Democratic-Republicans Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr against the incumbent Federalists, John Adams and Charles Pinckney. At the time, the tickets made no distinction between the president and vice president. The man with the most votes would win. The campaigning was bitter. Mr. Speaker, we've been confined to this hall for six days. We're like prisoners, eating here, sleeping here, going about in our nightcaps, never permitted to go to our hearts and homes. Why must we have further delay? The Federalist Party had split down the middle. Some supported John Adams. Some supported the point of view of Alexander Hamilton. Federalists won the New England states, while Democratic Republicans easily carried the South, and the party split New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Jefferson and Burr won the popular vote, but both received 73 electorates, creating the need for a contingent election in the House of Representatives. Congressman from Delaware, and it has been rumored in this rumor-ridden capital that Alexander Hamilton, leader of the Federalists and a bitter foe of Thomas Jefferson, is nevertheless urging Bayard... Northern Federalist Congressman backed Burr, a New Yorker. Southern Democratic Republican Congressman backed Jefferson. With the first 35 ballots deadlocked, Alexander Hamilton, who did not see eye-to-eye -eye with either Jefferson or Burr, convinced several Federalists to switch their support to Jefferson getting him elected as the third president of the United States. Even in the early 1800s, both geographic and party divides were fierce. 
I'm in the executive office of Governor James Monroe. The roll of drums and the bugle you can hear are coming from the great courtyard below. The Virginia militia has been assembling down there since early this morning. I'd guess that there are about a thousand men here, fully outfitted for a long march. On Halloween 1948, the office of the president is on everyone's mind. Tuesday, November 2nd, will be the 41st presidential election in U.S. history. Democrat incumbent Harry Truman will be running against New York's governor and Republican Thomas Dewey. Truman is a massive underdog. South Carolina's Governor Strom Thurmond is running a separate Dixiecrat ticket. And another FDR VP, Henry Wallace, is the Progressive Party's nominee. I've been in touch with Governor McKean of Pennsylvania. His militia, too, is fully armed and ready. We are prepared to march troops instantly upon the Capitol for the purpose not of promoting, but of preventing revolution and the shedding of a single drop of blood. But, Governor, there are rumors that some 1,500 Democrats from Virginia and Maryland threaten to assassinate anyone who takes the presidency. Less than three years after Jefferson was elected, their hatred bubbling over. Aaron Burr shot and killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel in Weehawken, New Jersey. Burr was at the time still the vice president of the United States. There have been reports of Alexander Hamilton's ghost ever since. Tonight, we'll find out what other ghosts were floating through the air on October 31st. 108. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we go back to October 31st, 1948, and open a five-part miniseries on that season's business and programming. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is Dance Macabre, Opus 40, written and composed in 1874 by Camille Saint-Saëns. The tone poem tells the story of death, who every year on Halloween calls forth the dead from their graves to dance until the rooster crows at dawn. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. Burning Gotham, the new historical fiction audio drama set in 1835 in New York City, is on its way. Go to burninggotham.com for new teasers and more information. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers.
This is Arthur Barrio with a summary of the news from the NBC newsroom in Washington. The newsmen who are tagging along with President Truman on his current political junket may return to Washington a tired bunch of boys. Mr. Truman's maintaining a tough pace. Today, for example, up before dawn. Up at 3 a.m., as a matter of fact, to greet Chicago political leaders who stepped aboard the train to visit him. Says Chicago's Jake Garvey, the president didn't say much. He was pretty sleepy. But when the sun came up, so did the president, to lash out once again at the 80th Congress. The Congress he charged as controlled by lobbies, bent on a boom or bust. As the clock ticked down to Election Day 1948, NBC broadcast news with Arthur Barrio. The U.S. emerged from the war a superpower, expected to have the largest hand in rebuilding Europe. But the country was also carrying a $240 billion war debt. In the two years after the war ended, more than 5 million Americans went on strike. It debilitated key sectors of the economy and stifled production, causing the largest inflation rise in the country's modern history. And the Taft-Hartley Act, limiting the power of labor unions. The strikes didn't end. On October 26th, the Radio Writers Guild struck for fair wages and for RWG guideline adherence by ad agencies. Their focus was the coming new medium, television. Negotiations would continue into 1949. Armed and loaded with weight, equivalent to bombs. With President Truman's approval rating as low as 32 percent, the DNC convened in July. Northern Democrats pushed for a strong civil rights platform, which the president was in favor of. Conservative Southern Dems were opposed. Moderates feared voter alienation. When the convention adopted the civil rights plank in a close vote, Southern Dems walked out and split off, nominating Strom Thurmond for president. They became known as the Dixiecrats. They hoped to force a contingent election in the House of Representatives, extracting concessions from either Dewey or Truman. Truman also faced a challenge in former VP Henry Wallace, who launched the Progressive Party, challenging Truman's Cold War policies. And to remain the head of 17 million subjects. And briefly, some other news notes. Governor Dewey is host today to about 100 radio and newspaper farm editors. He invited them to his Pauling, New York home to obtain their ideas on what the farmer needs to remain prosperous. Henry Wallace is scheduled to speak tonight in Boston, and members of the Socialist Party plan to picket the hall. Meantime, Boston police will be on hand to prevent any egg or tomato throwing, such as Wallace experienced recently on his campaign tour. On October 30th, Republican nominee Thomas E. Dewey ended his campaign before 18,000 at Madison Square Garden. He'd run against FDR in 1944, losing, but received 46% of the popular vote. After President Roosevelt passed away, there were many who felt Dewey made a better post-war choice than Harry Truman. In the 1946 New York gubernatorial election, Dewey won by nearly 700,000 votes, the most in New York history to that point. But the Security Council will begin deliberations today. In Jerusalem, all of the city's 90,000 Jews have been placed under virtual house arrest. The curfew is being imposed by the Israeli army and is to remain in effect until further notice. Six military policemen are guarding the United States consulate, and two military policemen will accompany any U.N. car in the city. France has proposed that Jerusalem be made an international zone. Meanwhile, in the Middle East, the Arab-Israeli war raged on. Fighting started the previous November. It ramped after Palestine was officially dissolved and Israel declared independence on May 14th. Count Benadot of Visbor was assassinated in September by four members of the Jewish Zionist group Lehi, one of whom 
Chitzak Shamir, would go on to be the seventh prime minister of Israel. Operation Hiram ended on Halloween with Israeli forces claiming to have complete control of Galilee. There may be today some sort of last-minute Russian installment buying. New government control setting minimum down payments go in effect Monday. So merchants are more or less ready for those customers trying to beat the deadline. The Cold War was growing, with Americans investigating potential communist cells within the government, fearing the world could split into two distinct groups, those who supported democracy and those in favor of totalitarianism. ...that they'll know what their husbands are talking about when they come up with such expressions as triple play or quarterback sneak. And that's the news to the moment. This is Arthur Barrio in Washington. And now, after a brief pause for station identification, we take you to New York, where you will hear a forum discussion as a prelude to United Nations Week. Sure, sure, I heard you, but stop making like a civics teacher, will you? What difference could my one vote make? Be a good guy, huh? Stop trying to sell me. No sale. I've never voted, and I never will. A woman's place is in the home. Leave politics to the men. No sale. Whatever way you slice it, no matter how you dress it, politics is still a dirty business. Why vote for any of them? Let's sit this one out. No sale. Living, 1948. Brought to you each week by NBC and its affiliated stations... Today holds up its mirror to reflect the whys and the wherefores of the great retreat from democracy when half our voting population will not go to the polls next Tuesday in a drama document entitled... Let's sit this one out. And here to help us explore the voting habits of you, his fellow citizens, is your narrator, Ben Grower. Greetings, America. For weeks now, the song has been heard throughout the land. At 4.35 from WNBC in New York, Living 1948 took to the air with a drama called Let's Sit This One Out. It focused on registered voters who don't vote. And next Tuesday, between dawn and evening, that siren song must pay off in voters sashaying down to the polling booth. But will it pay off? We needn't wait until Wednesday for the answer. According to an early estimate by the Gallup poll, out of 93 million citizens of voting age, 47 million will vote next Tuesday. 46 million will set this one out. Or putting it another way, 49% of our potential voters will be election day wallflowers. And yet, come Wednesday, November 3rd, you may well find that the sitters out, by voting, might have changed the results of the election all the way down the line from the presidency to justice of the peace. To show you what we mean, let's go back to an election not so many years ago. In the October days of that year, someone everywhere was saying, Might as well try to stop the wind from blowing. Why should I even bother going across the street to the polling place? What earthly good would my one measly vote do? So our nearsighted friend and millions of others sat out that election. Their uncast vote certainly didn't help the loser, but they did help the victor. This is how they did it. In 2016, with 268 electoral votes, enough to win, the victor had a total majority of only 340,000 votes, less than one vote per 100 people. In 16 states, had only one out of every 10 non-voters cast a ballot, the election might have been reversed. Do you get the idea now, Mr. Election Wallflower? Did you ever hear of a team winning a World Series by never showing up at the ballpark? 
How about that, Mr. Wallflower? Okay, okay, I'll take your word for it. Now, don't take my word for it. Let's see what can happen when the Wallflowers suddenly decide to join the dance. In 1916, with America on the verge of war, Charles Evans Hughes and Woodrow Wilson were opposed for the presidency. A few hours after the polls closed, two newspaper men met in a hotel room in Washington. What are you doing up? I thought you'd gone to bed. Uh, yeah, I'm on my way, Pete, but I thought I'd stop by and collect something to sweeten my dreams. How's about forking over that hundred you bet on Wilson? What's the rush? Well, you know me. I never believe in putting off for tomorrow what I can collect tonight. It's in the bag, Petey boy. Hughes has just gone off the bed with the words, Good night, Mr. President, ringing in his ears. You're all jumping the gun, Al. We're still waiting for the results from California. Okay, if you want to be technical about it. But you must be expecting a modern miracle. California's always been Republican. Not this year, brother. I got a hunch California's going for Wilson. Democratic for the first time in history? Oh, come on. Let's have the dough. I'll buy you a nightcap. Huh? Just a minute. I think Hughes put his foot in it when he snubbed Governor Hiram Johnson. Johnson's the most popular man in California. My hunch says that people will be sore enough to get off their perches and vote for Wilson. In fact, I'll lay another 50 on that hunch. You're wrong, sucker. And with early morning came the results from California. The sit-out votes had gone to the polls. For the first time in history, the Democrats carried the state. By a mighty slender 2,000 votes, the state went to Wilson, and with the state went the presidency. You get it now, Mr. Wallflower? I think I do. Sitting out an election will never help elect your candidate, but it may very well fatten the chances of the opposition. You've got it. That government is strongest of which every man feels himself a part. Thomas Jefferson said that. Living 1948 was conceived as a radio mirror of contemporary U.S. life. Certainly you must recall a civics class in which... The shows range from surveys to dramatic histories to commentaries. Hosted by Ben Grauer, it featured some of New York's best radio actors, like Art Carney, Alexander Scurby, Claudia Morgan, Marilyn Erskine, and Barry Thompson. ...without exercising your franchise. A democracy cannot remain sound and healthy without real participation by its citizens. CBS, taking note, launched the People Act to rival the program. By late 1948, their network competition was in its third decade. 90% of those eligible went to the polls. Ah, but that was in Italy. In 1946, 81, 76, and 74%. Ah, but that was in another country, in fact, three other countries, namely France, Great Britain, and Canada. In our own democracy in that same year of 46... We set a new all-time record for the number of voters that didn't. Only 38% of Americans cast ballots. Korea, over 90%. Italy, 90%. France, 81%. England, 76%. But in our own United States, only 38%. Dr. George Gallup called it one of the worst scandals of our American democracy. How does it come about, this sorry record? This business of non-voting that scandalizes our fair democratic name. Well, I can only speak for myself, but up until two years ago, I just never felt that I had anything to vote for one way or the other. Now it's a different matter. What changed your mind? I inherited an apartment house and also a business building. I've got two good reasons for voting now.
I no sooner arrived in New York when I was just working steadily and almost that first year I was here, 1944, when I first came to New York, I got the shadow. I was called down to audition for something. I was doing another broadcast and they were losing the studio at like two o'clock and I was called in and I didn't get off the air until quarter of two. So I said, well, I'm not sure that I can make it. I said, I'll try my best. So I got there about three minutes to two and I thought, mm -hmm. you know, so they said, well, we're losing the studio at two o'clock. They handed me this thing and said, just read this. It's the opening and closing of this thing and that was mm -hmm. it. And I looked at it and it was the opening and closing of The Shadow. <laughs> And you didn't know it was for the show? No, I didn't know uh -huh. what it was for. <laughs> so I just read it as I'd always remembered hearing it, uh -huh. you know, because we used to follow the shadow as first nighter. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And so I always heard the closing signature. So that was that. I, you know, I read it and I forgot about it. We constantly doing auditions and some we get and some we don't. And about uh, oh, a week or so later, I got the call and said, oh, you're it. And so I did it from then until it went off the air. I did the shadow, I guess, longer than anyone. Uh, from for, for uh, several from '44 until the, the until end. Until it went off. When the was air. the end? Middle '50s. Middle '50s, about '56 uh -huh. or '57, somewhere uh -huh. around. I think somewhere around. And there. there were brand new shows being oh, presented yeah. every Sunday, yeah, yeah. Sunday afternoon without right. the shadow. Five o'clock shadow. I was gone. <laughs> <laughs> Halloween 1948 was windy in New York, while John Dewey headlined the New York Daily News. In Brooklyn, James Edward Heller penned a Daily Eagle editorial claiming the current generation of kids celebrated Halloween too feebly. Makers of Post Corn Toasties welcomes you to the House of Mystery. This is Roger Elliot, otherwise known as the Mystery Man. Inviting you to join us for another storytelling session here at the House of Mystery. By October 31st, 1948, Hello, the Mutual Broadcasting System's flagship WOR in New York was approaching its 27th anniversary. It was argued that no station matched its signal coverage. WOR Mutual was known for its cop shows, soap operas, and on Sundays, its mysteries. I'm sorry, Johnny, I don't think I understand that. At 4 p.m. Eastern Time, House of Mystery signed on for General Foods. John Griggs was Roger Elliott, ghost chaser and scientist of the supernatural. The show was directed by Olga Drus, who guided the program along a fine line. Because House of Mystery was geared for children, it couldn't be overly gruesome or vulgar. I give up. Right out of the fresh protective box. Uh, just like uh, Post Corn Toasties was uh, nuts. 
or candy or popcorn. Postcorn toasties are delicious that way. That's a wonderful yeah. idea. No fuss, no bother, but still you can take postcorn toasties with you on your picnic, automobile trips, or swimming parties. Just tuck a fresh protective box of postcorn toasties in with your luggage and eat those tender, crisp, golden brown flakes as you would nuts or candy right out of the box. And you can be sure of one thing. The special fresh protective box will keep postcorn toasties fresh and crisp until the last golden flake has been eaten. Thank you, Ruth and Johnny, for a wonderful suggestion. Oh, that's okay. And now I see it's time for today's mystery. The story I call A Gift from the Dead. It began in a hotel in San Francisco, where I'd taken a room to wait for Paul Sheldon, an old friend of mine who was flying in from Kansas City to join me. Some weeks ago, Paul and I had been invited by his sister, Jane Kovarak, to spend a few days at her home in the beautiful but rugged Big Sur country, 150 miles south of San Francisco. We'd accepted Jane's invitation with enthusiasm as evidence of her complete recovery from the shock of her husband's death. Well, my thoughts were miles away when the bellboy knocked on my door and handed me a letter. It was from Jane. I opened it and began to read, but I was hardly beyond the first line when a vague feeling of uneasiness crept over me. The note was brief and to the point. She was canceling her invitation. As the day wore on, I reread the letter several times each time feeling more uneasy. And by afternoon, I found myself pacing restlessly back and forth, impatient for Paul's arrival. I was about to leave for the airport to meet his plane when a long-distance telephone call stopped me. It was a woman, her voice tight with panic. Mr. Roger Elliott? Yes? Who's this? My name is Craig, Miss Alma Craig. Yes? I'm Mrs. Kovrak's housekeeper. I see. Mr. Elliott, you must come at once. Mrs. Kovrak needs help. But I just got a letter from her canceling the invitation. I know. That's why I'm calling. We're in danger, Mr. Elliott. You must come. What kind of danger, Miss Craig? The master of this house has returned. We've heard him. He's here. Basil Kovrak has come back. Mr. Elliott, he's come back from the dead. With a sharp click of the receiver, Miss Craig's voice was gone. At 4.30, True Detective Mysteries signed on. Oh, Henry, public energy number one. Yes, it's time for O. Henry, America's famous candy bar, to present True Detective Mysteries. And now, O. Henry, America's famous candy bar, brings you John Shuttleworth. This is John Shuttleworth, editor-in-chief of True Detective magazine, bringing you the case history of an actual crime. I'm sure that you've often heard the expression, crime classic. To be honest with you, I don't know exactly what that phrase means. But if you take it to mean that there are a few criminal cases so outstanding as to become famous, then I can safely say that today's case, which I call The Dream of Richard Lauber, is a crime classic. It started on Gertrude Schmidt's day off, which she spent on one of the numerous beaches outside New York that yacht out there is a pretty sight, isn't it? Yes, it is. 
But you, you're even prettier. That's a pretty compliment, but I shouldn't listen. I don't know you. If that's all that troubles you, I can take care of it immediately. My name is Joseph Strasser, and I'm an architect. <laughs> oh, not so fast, not so fast. You're right. We should sit down somewhere where it's cool and comfortable and get to know each other. Oh, I don't think that... Oh, come along. It's such a beautiful day. There's no harm in a cold drink. My name is Gertrude Schmidt, and I will have a cold drink with you. Good. We should be friends. We both come from Germany. You too? Oh, yes. I came here when I was very young, but I've always wanted to go back. My father didn't want me to come here. He said I should stay home and settle down and get married. But I had other ideas. But you certainly believe in marriage. With the right man? <laughs> what woman doesn't? But you haven't met the right man yet. Not yet, at least. Perhaps you have met the right man today. You always talk this way to girls you've just met? No. Only to you. Because we're going to see a lot of each other. Home at last? It's about time. That's a fine greeting. And look at you. Look at your stockings. Don't I give you enough money to dress decently? I'd rather you made me poor than the husband of a slatter. Hold your tongue. You have your nerve coming here at 10 o'clock, leaving me to take care of the children and keep your supper warm for you since 6. How do I know where you've been? I was a fool to marry you. So you were a fool to marry me. I'll beat you until... What's stopping you? Ah, uh, give me my supper and stay out of my sight. This is John Shuttleworth again. You wouldn't have recognized Richard Lawler as he wined and dined Gertrude Schmidt in New York's swankiest restaurants and took long walks with her in the country. He was again using the name of Joseph Strasser. He was a carefree bachelor, charming, talking of marriage. In a moment, we shall hear the path down which Lauber was to plunge with terrifying speed. But first, it's time for O. Henry. Though based on items from True Detective magazine, the series was sponsored by O. Henry Candy Bars. Many of the stories unfolded from the criminal's viewpoint. The show is much like gangbusters in allowing the audience to witness the fatal mistakes that led to the culprit's capture. Borrowing yet another page from gangbusters, the magazine offered rewards of $500 for information leading to the arrest of real criminals. Clues were given after each broadcast. These were highly descriptive, focusing on scars and deformities, and the show resulted in many arrests. else would come in. Did you do the shadow from the East Coast? Yes, that was uh, from New York. It was always from New York. Yes. Never out here. No. Did you have to take a trip to the Orient to learn how to cloud men's minds? No, I managed to do that without, <laughs> ha without having to go to the Orient. The shadow never really gave the opening of the show, but there was that shadowy voice that... Yes, well, I did the opening and closing signal, the who knows mm -hmm. what evil lurks in the hearts of men. Do you think that we could get a 50-cent version of that? Uh, oh, yeah. It won't sound the same because I worked on a special microphone uh -huh. which gave it a, a filtered effect, but I can do it I okay. mean, as far as that's concerned. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? 
The shadow knows. <laughs> At 5 p.m., Mutual's most famous program, The Shadow, signed on. The show was in its 11th season on the air in 1948. Legendary announcer Andre Baruch handled MC duties, while Grace Matthews played Margot Lane. Brett Morrison was Lamont Cranston. Halloween's episode was called Murder by a Corpse. When you were playing uh, Lamont Cranston, The Shadow, who was your lovely friend and companion, Margot Lane? Well, I had four. Marjorie Anderson was the first, and then Gertrude Warner. Gertrude was actually the last one. Grace Matthews and Leslie Woods. I think Gertrude did it longer than anyone else. And then Agnes Moorhead did it with uh, Orson Welles. Mm -hmm. When I first did it, you know, we were live. Uh -huh. We used to work from the Long Acre Theater in uh, New York. Of course, I don't believe radio shows should be watched, but the audiences seem to enjoy it. But it's such a small percentage of yeah. the listeners that it uh, doesn't, I guess, destroy the illusion. The forces of law and order is in reality Lamont Cranston, wealthy young man about town. Years ago in the Orient, Cranston learned a strange and mysterious secret, the hypnotic power to cloud men's minds so they cannot see him. Cranston's friend and companion, the lovely Margot Lane, is the only person who knows to whom the voice of the invisible shadow belongs. Today's drama, Murder by a Corpse. The doctor and the nurse walk through the white silence of the sanitarium corridor and stop before the door of room seven. The doctor peers through the small glass panel in the face of the door and nods to the attendant inside. The door is unlocked, opened, and the doctor and nurse walk in. Morning, Dr. Manchek. Good morning, Rossi. How's our new patient, Mr. Holden? We had a tough time with him in the ambulance last night. Dr. Adams had to give him a shot. Dr. Adams reports on the case is on your desk, Dr. Manchin. Yes, I saw it, Miss Wagner. Mr. Holden, I'm Dr. Carl Manchek, chief of this institution. You're lying. You hear me? You're lying. You're in with the rest of them. I'm not crazy. This is a trick. You're a spy like the rest of them. Same line all the time, Doc. You can't fool me with that doctor act. I know who you are. You're one of his spies, too. I know. Spies. Same talk all the time. Typical manic depressive fear fantasy. Miss Wagner? Yes, sir. Tell Dr. Adams I wish to see him in my office. I'll be there when I finish examining the new patient. Yes, Dr. Manchin. <laughs> You're lying. You're in with the rest of them. 
I'm not crazy. This is a trick. <laughs> How was I, Doc? You were quite excellent, Eddie. I know who you are. You're all spies, all of you. How'd you like it, Sid? Terrific, Eddie. You were terrific. Sure. Just say, ask the Doc here. He'll tell you the Doc's an expert. He'll tell anybody that Eddie Holden blew his top. Severe paranoia, Eddie. See, Sid? Paranoia. Paranoia. That's what the expert says. So severe, they got to watch me night and day. And who do they happen to pick out to do the watching? <laughs> Nobody but Sid Rossi. Neat setup, huh? <laughs> Doc, you worked it out like a masterpiece. Naturally, I specialize in uh, cases like yours, Eddie. Yeah, it was a lucky day I made the contact with Sid. I won't forget you two for this. Oh, you can be sure we'll keep your memory quite refreshed. Yeah. A $50,000 bundle is something to remember, ain't it, Doc? Don't worry, you'll get your share. But Doc, did the uh, telegram work? Perfectly. Fenty left on the 8.15 train. Uh, what about his wife, Claire? She remained, just as you said she would. Eddie, hmm? are you sure Claire knows where the bonds are ditched? Of course she knows. Well, everything's set for tonight. Yeah, all set. I let you out the fire door at the end of the hall. You just got to cut across the lawn to the rear gate. I'll see that the gate is left unlocked. I cover up for you here so as no one gets wise while you're out. The lead pipe said, Jenny. But remember, you must return before daylight. Otherwise... I'll be back. Now, uh, we're gone, huh? Here you are. Eddie, you didn't tell us how you're going to handle that Bentley dance. It all depends, Sid. It all depends on how much Claire Bentley is afraid of a ghost. Ted and Earl will be awfully worried about us tomorrow. We're over an hour late now. Margo, I don't know what made me turn onto this road. From now on, no more shortcuts. Don't look now, but your sense of direction is slipping. Margo, you're a front seat driver. Oh. Well, it's a new rainstorm that blows no road sign. Lamont, what are you... That fork in the road ahead, there's a signpost. Oh, thank heavens. Mason City, ten miles. That's the right. Mount Cleardale Cemetery, two miles. The left... <laughs> Margo, I leave the choice to you. <laughs> to the right, of course. When we get to Mason City, we'll call Nora. What? That car coming down the road. Tell it straight for us. I'd better pull over. Margo, look out! Margo, are you all right? Yes. You sure? I'm just shaking. Come on, we'll see how they are on the other car. I was lucky I was able to pull away in time, otherwise our destination would have automatically been changed from Mason City to Mount Cleardale Cemetery. Take Manhattan, the Bronx, and Staten Island, too. Beginning in the late 1940s, the WOR listener profile shifted as New York's population changed. Both the GI Bill and City Parks Commissioner Robert Moses' urban renewal plan sent middle-class families to the suburbs. Racial discrimination came to the forefront a much higher percentage of white Americans were having their applications accepted. It's very fancy on old As night descended on New York on October 31st, temperatures dropped into the upper 40s and an eerie fog rolled in. Police were on alert for mischief as children went trick-or-treating. 
the Halloween tradition was still seen by many as an act of begging and vandalism. In response, members of the Madison Square Boys Club paraded through the Lower East Side carrying a banner that read, American boys don't beg. The following period has been purchased by the New York State Wallace for President Committee for presenting Henry A. Wallace, who will speak from Dallas, Texas, in behalf of his candidacy for the presidency. Politically, progressive Henry Wallace was making a dent in Harry Truman's campaign. On election day, Truman will still carry the city, collecting 1.6 million votes to Dewey's 1.1 million. But Henry Wallace will receive over 420,000 votes. It's this voter split that will allow Thomas Dewey to narrowly win his home state by 60,000 votes, giving the Republicans 47 important electorates. The great big city is a wondrous toy. At home, the mutual broadcasting system's prime time featured news and music. But at 7 p.m., literature's most famous detective took to the air from WOR. This is WOR New York. Seven o'clock by Longine, the world's most honored watch. Product of the Longine Whitnor Watch Company. From New York City, the makers of Clipper Craft Clothes for Men and more than 1,200 leading retail stores from coast to coast present that immortal character created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the world's most famous detective, Sherlock Holmes, starring John Stanley. <laughs> this week's story, The Adventure of the Uddington Witch. Yes, Watson. You say you saw a shadow dart into this forest after the murder? I did, Watson. And it was an extraordinary shadow indeed. What do you mean? I saw what was apparently a witch, Watson. A witch? Precisely. The Black Witch of Uddington. The local townsfolk say she still prowls this forest. Good evening, Dr. Watson. Good evening, Mr. Harris. And what adventure are you working on tonight, Doctor? One of the strangest and weirdest in my memoir. Holmes and I always referred to it as the adventure of the Uddington Witch. The adventure of the Uddington Witch. Sounds like something to raise the goosebumps, Doctor. Indeed it is, Mr. Harris. But first, Mr. Harris, I know you have something to say about Clippercraft clothes. Indeed I do. The day you wear your new Clippercraft suit for the first time... Your friends are likely to wonder whether you came into an unexpected fortune. Sherlock Holmes peaked on radio between 1939 and 1946 with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce playing Holmes and Watson. They made 14 films during this time, and their rating climbed to 14.1 in 1942 on NBC. The next year, the entire cast moved to the mutual broadcasting system. They remained for three seasons until Holmes left for ABC. Basil Rathbone stayed with Mutual to star in a new series called Scotland Yard. Nigel Bruce stayed on as Watson while Tom Conway became Holmes. When the Semler Company discontinued sponsorship in the spring of 1947, ABC canceled the show. That summer, 
Clipper Craft Clothing signed on to pay the bills. And see for yourself how true it is. The program moved back to Mutual, with John Stanley as Holmes and Alfred Shirley as Watson. By Halloween 1948, it was airing Sundays at 7 p.m. And now, Dr. Watson, what's this adventure of the Uddington Witch all about? Well, Mr. Harris, it took place in 99, as I recall. Holmes and I were taking our ease at Baker Street one evening when we received an urgent and certainly a bizarre telegram. It came from Uddington, a town in the Shire of Lanark, in the lowlands of Scotland. And it was from a Lord Dunbar, master of Heathercliff Manor. It begged Holmes to come to the manor with all possible speed, stating that a witch had spirited away his mother in the dark of night. A witch? Exactly, Mr. Harris. A witch. Naturally, Holmes's curiosity was immediately aroused, and we resolved to take the noon train the following day. But little did we know, as we read the telegram, that tragic events were already in the making at Uddington on that very same evening. It began with Lord Dunbar in his study. Who's there? Who's there? Bruce? Hester? Why in blazes don't you answer? Didn't I lock my door? Someone has to disturb me. Well, what do you... <gasps> you! I! I, Lord Dunbar! I! The Black Witch of Uddington! I come to bring me the death on the witch's Dunbar! No! No! <laughs> Yes, I was in bed when it came. Positively ghastly, too. Seemed to come from Uncle Andrew's study. Oh, yes, Bruce. Please hurry. Something's wrong. Terribly wrong. Come on, Aunt Hester. Let's have a look. Here's the study. Uncle Andrew! Uncle Andrew! Oh, Bruce, there's no answer. Then we'd better look in. The door's open. Right. Good Lord. The witch's revenge. Andrew! Andrew! Oh! Ah, oh, it's you, Holmes. I was wondering when you were coming back to the compartment. Our train is due in Eddington very shortly. Unfortunately, my dear Watson, we're too late to help Lord Dunbar. Too late? What do you mean? I've just seen a copy of a Newcastle newspaper brought aboard at the last station. Lord Dunbar was murdered earlier this morning. What? Foully murdered, Watson. Found dead in his study with a steel spike driven through his heart. A spike? Good Lord. Does this method of murder suggest anything to you, Watson? Why, why no, Holmes. I can't say it does. And you're not up on your lord of demons and witches, my dear fellow. It so happens that the witches, as recently as 200 years ago, were believed to have tortured and stabbed their victims with pins, needles, and sometimes small spikes. Good heavens. It may also interest you to know, Watson, that the history of Lord Dunbar's antecedents gives this macabre affair a rather grim and yet fascinating twist. What do you mean? An ancestor of Lord Dunbar's in the late 17th century was one of Whitstam's most mortal enemies. As Chief Justice of the highest court here in the Scottish Lowlands, 
He hanged many a witch at Gallow Lee, or tied them to a stake on the sands until the tide came up to end their misery. Uh, Holmes, you're not suggesting that this is some kind of witch's revenge? I'm suggesting nothing, Watson, until I have a look at Heathercliff Manor and its remaining inhabitants. As radio audiences changed, Holmes and Watson couldn't keep up. Mutual canceled the series in the spring. ABC revived it for one final season before the last American version of the Sherlock Holmes series departed from the air. Mercy on us all. On the frigid, blustery night of December 16, 1835, the worst fire in New York City history sweeps through Manhattan. Everything south of Maiden Lane and east of Broad Street that time the city's chief merchant district, and the one with the highest property value, turns to rubble. The fire causes the modern equivalent of a half billion dollars in damages, and the official investigation finds an exploded gas pipe near a lit coal stove in the offices of Comstock and Andrews to be the culprit. No public blame is ever assigned. But what if New York's greatest accidental fire was no accident? Coming to your favorite podcast app, Burning Gotham, the new audio drama about the fastest growing city in the world and the opportunists who shaped it. To find out more, please subscribe to this audio feed or go to burninggotham.com. I primarily was a Californian. Yeah.
euphemistically, glamorously called Hollywood. <laughs> uh, indeed, there were uh, the New York actors, the shows that came out of New York in the golden days of radio were primarily of a documentary sense and very often a more literate sense, very often a more substantial sense. Chicago was primarily a soap opera production center because the slaughterhouses in those days were in Chicago where the soap was being manufactured of animal fats. That's and interesting. That's exactly the reason for it. And the sponsors and the sponsors' wives who decided upon the artistic merits of any artist were in close proximity to the production. And Hollywood then, you see, uh, when I began in 35, just at that point, San Francisco was the big town on the coast. And uh, up to that point, uh, motion picture artists, motion picture performers were forbidden to appear on radio for fear they would lose their, their glamour. And since tickets cost 35 cents apiece to go to the motion pictures, there was a, a real problem until someone's nephew, I suppose, in one studio decided, let our actor, our movie star, step into your living room, and the phrase was born, and suddenly there became a vogue for motion picture actors. Now, the movie star was named and starred. He was the great glamorous attraction, and that's how Hollywood expanded into the glamour show. But those surrounding him were the workaday able actors who played part after part after part. Mm. In the fall of 1948, four of radio's top seven shows still originated from NBC's KFI in Los Angeles. One of the most valuable NBC time slots was Sunday night at 6.30. It served as the lead-in to the Jack Benny program. For years, it had been occupied by the great Gildersleeve. On October 2nd, The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet joined NBC's lineup after four seasons on CBS. Both sponsor International Silver, an agency of record Young and Rubicum, expected the show's rating to jump. Did you know, Harriet, that there are over 320,000 men in the National Guard today? No, I didn't. And did you know that every member of the Guard reports for training with his unit at least once a week and receives pay for it? No, I didn't. And that they now have an aviation branch called the Air National Guard? Did you know that dinner is ready and it's time to go to work with our 1847 Rogers Brothers silver plate? No, I didn't. And that America's finest silver plate is 1847 Rogers Brothers? That I did. <laughs> America's finest silver plate is 1847 Rogers Brothers. From Hollywood, International Silver Company, creators of 1847 Rogers Brothers Silver Plate, presents The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, starring America's favorite young couple, Ozzie Nelson and Harriet Hilliard. Excitement in the air. A mysterious change has taken place in the vicinity of 1847 Rogers Road. 
Remember the friendly old elm tree in front of the house? Well, it doesn't look friendly anymore. The full moon shining through it, and on one of the bare branches, there's a big black owl. And the old dependable weather vane on top of the garage. Gee, it looks different now. I'm not sure if it's a weather vane or not, the way the shadows fall. Could be a witch on a broomstick. Oh, it's spooky out tonight. In the Nelson kitchen, there's an atmosphere of feverish activity and excited preparations. What are you looking for, David? We're trying to find some paper bags. Big ones. Well, look in the bottom drawer there. There. That's a good one, Ricky. Yeah, but what do I do with the potatoes? No, not that drawer, Ricky. On the other side. Hey, what's going on out here? We're getting some paper bags. Sound like you were taking the kitchen apart. Halloween, boy. We're going to have fun tonight, Pop. Yeah, it looks plenty spooky out to me. What do you have there, dear? Oh, I was just rummaging around upstairs a bit, and I thought the boys might make a costume out of these old work pants. Gee, Pop, they're pretty dirty. Not only that, dear, they're covered with paint. Well, what do you expect, Harriet? I wore them when I painted the breakfast nook. I think you did a better job on the pants than you did on the breakfast nook. <laughs> How about you, Ricky? Would you like to be a painter? Will you get your white cap and stick a couple of brushes in your belt? Golly, Pop, those pants are pretty big. Oh, I don't know. Let's see how they look on you. Here, step into them. Put your foot in there. Yeah. Now the other foot. Now pull them up. Mm. Oh, that's a wonderful costume. The headless painter. <laughs> Anyhow, Pop, we don't need costumes. We got masks. That's enough. Well, you suit yourself. We used to wear costumes when I was a kid. That's just for little kids, Pop. Me and David are going trick or treat. Trick or treat? Sure. We ring a guy's doorbell and say, trick or treat. If he doesn't give us cookies or something, we let him have it. <laughs> there you are, dear. That's Halloween, 1948. Sounds more like Chicago, 1925. <laughs> it's a lot of fun, Pop. Didn't you used to do that when you were a kid? No, David. As I recall, we used to go in more for the real spirit of Halloween. You know, the spooky, scary stuff. What do you mean, Pop? Well, I, I mean, we'd find some old haunted house and go prowling around looking for ghosts and stuff. You sure were brave, Pop. Oh, not necessarily, David. Pop, did you ever see a ghost? Oh, I won't say I saw a ghost, but I will say I saw something. A spook? I don't know. It was white and shimmering, indistinct. It wavered back and forth. Sometimes it was there, sometimes it wasn't there. White and shimmering. Did they have television sets then, Pop? <laughs> no, Ricky, this was right out in the center of the living room. I'm afraid Halloween's different nowadays. All the wonderful, spooky, hobgoblin atmosphere, that's all changed now. Can't help feeling a little sad when you see the joys of your childhood disappearing in a changing world. Halloween just isn't exciting anymore. Are you going to cry, Pop? No, 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 just the memories coming back. You sure must have had fun, Pop. Do you think there's really such a thing as a ghost? A real ghost, I mean? Well, I don't know. In a spooky old house with the moon shining through the broken shutters, you imagine you see some pretty strange things. I'd sure like to see a ghost. Boy, would I run. Well, there's the old McAdams house up on the hill. That's a pretty spooky-looking place. 
I wouldn't be at all surprised if there were a ghost or two lurking around in there. Do you think we could see one if we went up there, Pop? It's very possible. Oh, Ozzy. David, your father's just kidding. Oh, let the boys have a little fun, Harriet. After all, it's Halloween. Come on, grab the bags, Richie. We gotta get going. Hey, wait for me. Don't you think a lot of the spirit of Halloween has been lost? Oh, I don't know, dear. The kids seem to have a good time. That's the important thing. Oh, they pretend to enjoy it. But where's the fun? Trick or treat. Where's the adventure? What danger is there in getting a handful of cookies from Mrs. Dunkel? You've never eaten Mrs. Dunkel's cookies. <laughs> have we had any callers yet? Oh, about a dozen of them. You should have seen little Julie Thornberry. She was all dressed up in one of Catherine's old dresses, and she had a stocking on her head. Really? Oh, I'm sorry I missed it. And little Georgie Dunkel. He had the cutest clown suit with skeleton sewed on it. We sure have some cute little kids in this neighborhood. I'll get it. Oh, wait a minute. Let me get it. I want to have some fun, too. Yes? Trick or treat. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute. Aren't you a little big to be playing trick or treat? Trick or treat. (laughs) How old are you? Fifty-three. <laughs> Who ever heard of a grown man playing trick-or-treat? Well, my little boy's over on the next block. I'm just helping him out. <laughs> you don't even have a costume. What do you think I am, a child? <laughs> Come on, trick-or-treat. It's a little unusual. What happens if I don't give you a treat? Well, I sneak back later and ring your doorbell. So what? And when you answered, I punch you in the nose. <laughs> Come on, trick or treat. Really funny. But here are some cookies. Only three? Well, they've got to go around. There are other children, too, you know. Okay. Oh, they're chocolate. My kid likes chocolate cookies. Thanks. Well, that's all right. Uh, how old is your little boy? Twenty-five. <laughs> One of the kids in the neighborhood, one of the older kids. Say, would you do me a favor if you're not too busy? Yeah, what is it? Would you stop down at the store and get some candies or something? The rate we're going, we're going to run out of stuff. Okay, I'll... Hey, what are you doing? Just putting a couple of cookies in your pocket, in case you got stopped for trick-or-treat. Some of the boys get pretty rough. Oh, Harriet, please. You don't think I'm afraid of a bunch of kids? Well, suit yourself. Last Halloween, Joe Randolph bumped into the backfield of the high school football team and came home minus his trousers. No kidding. I understand they have a, a pretty good team this year. Well, why don't you just take these four cookies, just in case? You better give me two more. The ends might be with them. <laughs> On Halloween 1948, Ozzie and Harriet snuck into a haunted house. As the hearse goes by, someday you are going to die. There's a spook in the meadow. Dear, dear, you might frighten the ghost. Must be a haunted house, the door squeaks. I don't know why you insisted on coming along, Harriet. I could just as easily have come by myself. Ozzie, something has hold of my coat. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> What's the 
Who, who closed the door? Didn't you? No. Oh, it must have been the wind. Gee, this place sure looks creepy with the moon streaming through the windows. What was that? What? Now, dear, don't be frightened. I, I'm right beside you. Ozzy, there's something in this room. It's coming toward us. It's getting closer. Harry, quick, my baseball bat. Hang on, careful with that. Oh, Harry. Oh, hello, Harriet. Huh? You old trickster. Oh, I just thought I'd have a little fun with all the talk that's been going around about this place. So you're the ghost David and Ricky saw. <laughs> I should have guessed by the description. You should have a bagpipe, though, Thorny. A bagpipe? Well, sure, haven't you heard? This place is supposed to be haunted by a Scotch ghost who plays the bagpipe. And each night he comes down the stairs playing some old... Well, you do have one, Thorny. Where is it? <laughs> oh, you sure play awful. Worse than you think. I don't play at all. <laughs> but I hear a bagpipe. Listen, I can hear it plain as day. Ozzy, up there, the head of the stairs. The ghost. The ghost of Lord McTavish. Well, we've seen it. Let's go. <laughs> now, let's all keep calm about this. We'll, we'll just keep quiet. Oh, let's pull it. It's getting late, Tony. Let's get out of here. Ozzy, you're carrying my coat. Wait. Oz, the door won't open. I keep turning the hand on it. won't open. Stop it, Tony. You've got hold of my nose. <laughs> this way, boy. Tony, the door's over here. Follow me. I'll make one of my own. <laughs> But the rating for Ozzy and Harriet that month was just 8.9. For more detail, please listen to Breaking Walls, episode 107. The gist is, the winds of change were in the air. So I moved, and I didn't want to leave NBC. I loved NBC. But I had to make some kind of a deal where I could make some money, because here I was getting the terrific salary, and was all salary. And I couldn't make a deal for a company. Well, I wouldn't care if I got a million dollars a week. That wouldn't do me any good. What good would that be? With income the tax, tax that right. sure. Right. So the ones that made me the deal and came right through with it quick was CBS. Then, of course, when NBC realized I was going to go, then they were willing to make the deal. But I didn't want to play one against the other, so I merely took... CBS. Well, CBS had uh, generally rated NBC at that time, didn't they, with these uh, No, NBC, NBC was, the, yeah, once I got on, but NBC was really the first network. Then when I moved over, a lot of shows moved over. Mm-hmm. So that made really CBS come up on top. Yeah. Really I made the million CBS by that move, which I didn't know or didn't think, you know, it when head of CBS William Paley returned from World War II in 1946, he was dismayed at the state of his network. Although Columbia had built an impressive news division, 12 of the top 15 rated shows on the air belonged to NBC. Prior to the end of World War II, advertising agencies controlled the radio network schedule by pitching programs for their clients. But Paley, felt the only way CBS could compete with NBC was to develop their own shows. He acted quickly. He named Frank Stanton president and himself chairman of the board. Paley would focus on programming. It was a huge gamble. CBS would have to sustain production costs for several shows until sponsors became interested. In the next two years, CBS launched more than 40 programs. 
but NBC still had radio's biggest stars. Then, in the summer of 1948, Paley received a phone call that would change broadcasting forever. On the line were Lou Wasserman and Taft Schreiber, president and VP of the Music Corporation of America. They asked if CBS would be interested in buying the Amos and Andy show, then airing on NBC. At the time, U.S. citizens were taxed 77% of all income over $70,000. However, if the duo behind Amos and Andy, Charles Carell and Freeman Gostin, incorporated and sold their show to the network, they would be taxed under capital gains laws at 25%. RCA's head, David Sarnoff, wasn't interested in making these production deals for NBC. With an eye for the coming TV boom, Paley bought the show for $2 million in September. Amos and Andy moved over on October 10th. The show would air Sundays at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Say, Amos, this seems like Sunday. It is Sunday. You see, Andy, we is on the radio now every Sunday on CBS for Rinso. That's right. Rinso, the new Rinso with Solium, brings you the Amos and Andy Show. Perhaps Paley would have been momentarily satisfied. But Amos and Andy lost their ratings battle that month to the Phil Harris and Alice Faye Show by more than three points. Say, Andy, maybe you've noticed when our announcer, John Lake, talks about Rinso, he don't talk big about it. He just tells you the facts about how good it is. Yeah, well, that's all he got to do. Just get people to use that new Rinso with Solium just once. And I guess they stick to Rinso. Well, I'm sure they do. Because Rinso with Solium gets white clothes not just whiter, but whiter than new. And washable colors not just brighter, but brighter than brand new. Rain or shine, indoors or out, new Rinso with Solium puts sunshine in your wash. Use Rinso next wash day. Tuesday, you have the great American privilege of voting. No one will know who you voted for. That is your secret and sacred privilege. So exercise it. Vote Tuesday. Good night, folks. See you next Sunday. With the U.S. presidential election on Tuesday, Paley resigned to worry about the ratings the following week. Then, much to his surprise, Wasserman and Schriever called again. They asked if Paley was interested in a similar deal with Jack Benny, who'd organized his activities into a corporation. Benny was unhappy with Sarnoff's refusal to honor production deals for NBC. Paley was interested in speaking on Monday. In the meantime, the Jack Benny program signed on NBC Sunday, October 31st at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, tonight is Halloween, and in Beverly Hills, as in communities all over the country, the little goblins have already started through the neighborhood playing trick or treat. Well, this is the last house in the block. Before we go to the next street, I think we ought to put all the stuff we got in one big bag. You go first, Bobby. I'm Joy. Bobby and me changed masks. Well, it doesn't make any difference. 
Let's all empty our pockets and see what we got. I'll go first. I got a piece of fudge, a stick of gum, and two lollipops. I got an apple, some popcorn, two cookies, and a chocolate bar. I got some lemon drops, a peppermint stick, and a donut. I got a Tootsie Roll, a packet of... <laughs> a package of Lifesavers and a can of Strong Heart. Hmm, dog food, huh? Hey, fellas, we're wasting time. Let's get over to the next street and knock on some more doors. Yeah, yeah, let's, yeah go. let's go. Hey, Bobby, there's that new kid that moved into the neighborhood. Oh, yeah. Hey, Butch. Hiya, fellas. You playing trick-or-treat, too? Yeah, I've been to every house in the neighborhood. You have? Hey, what do you got in that big gunny sack? A walnut and two jelly beans. <laughs> ah, Beverly Hills. <laughs> Butch, I want you to meet the treasurer of our club, Mr. Jack Benny. Hiya, Mr. Benny. Hello, Butch. You can be very proud that you've met Mr. Benny. I can't? Why? You've just shaken the hand that knocked out Gene Tunney. <laughs> Gosh, Gene Tunney. With that old right cross to that kisser in the third round, right, killer? Well, I, uh... I know that you kids have a tendency to exaggerate. It, it wasn't the seventh round. <laughs> That's what it was. Until Butch, what Mr. Benny went to England this year. Yeah, Mr. Benny was the most decorated athlete in the United States Olympic team. <laughs> Gee, what if that was Ian? Are you kidding? In the same afternoon, he won the 100-meter dash, the pole vault, the discus throw, the broad jump, the high hurdles, and the diving contest. Holy smoke. And then he had to run 12 miles back to the Palladium to be in time for his evening performance. <laughs> Gee whiz. And it wasn't easy running with all those medals on. Oh, boy, what an athlete. Yeah, but Mr. Benny doesn't want anybody to know it. He even wears big pants in his coat so his muscles won't show. <laughs> and not, on, not only that, Butch, Mr. Benny's in the movies, too. He made a picture called... Oh, come on, fellas, let's go. <laughs> you know, Halloween will be over before we know it. Now, let's go ring some more doorbells. Okay. Hey, kids, this is the street where Mary Livingston lives. Mary Livingston? Isn't that the girl you said was nuts about you? Yeah, yeah. I'm going over and call on her. Listen, I'll see you back here in a few minutes. Okay. Gee, I hope Mary's maid is out tonight so she'll open the door herself. Boy, will this mask fool her. Trick or treat? Ah! <laughs> oh, Miss Livingston, Miss Livingston. Uh, what is it, Pauline? What's the matter? There's a wolf man at the door. A wolf man? Oh, Pauline, it's probably some kid. I'll go and see. Mary, it's me. Oh, for heaven's sake. Pauline, come out from under the bed. Oh, did the wolf man go away? It's not a wolf man. It's Mr. Benny. He pulled, pulled his toupee down over his face and cut two eyes in it. <laughs> yeah. Say, Mary, do you mind if I come in and sit down for a few minutes? I'm worn out. Worn out? Why are you so tired? I don't know. I guess I haven't gotten over the Olympics, you know? What? I mean, I walked over from Olympic Boulevard. <laughs> Oh, boy. Let me get into that chair. Say, Jack, I received an advanced copy of the Saturday Evening Post, and there's a big article in it about you. There is? 
Let me see it. Here you are. Oh, yeah. Say, look at that picture of me. Say, I look pretty good, don't I? A lot of color in my face. Put on your glasses. That's an ad for Campbell's tomato soup. <laughs> oh. You were looking at a tomato. Thank heaven. I thought I had a stem growing out of my head. <laughs> There's your picture on the other side. Oh, yeah. And there are my writers around the swimming pool. <laughs> what are you laughing at? They look like four gophers coming up for air. I can't understand it. I pay them enough to get their teeth straightened. <laughs> Gosh, my feet hurt. Mary, do you mind if I slip off my shoes? No, go right ahead. Okay. And like I say, I was terribly disappointed because I had brought the band all the way from New Orleans and found mm -hmm. out that they're using Wayne King instead of me on the Burns show. I don't even think that Jack was even aware of that. If he was, I never found out mm -hmm. about it. And I spent 16 or 17 of the most beautiful years of my life with him. A man who was one of a kind. I think everyone would agree with well, you. Well, what the hell, what? he proved that. Well, those guys all came up through mm -hmm. the ranks, you mm -hmm. know. I mean, they knew what they were doing. Because when you're around Benny, you were around a guy that he and Fred Allen and guys like that, they're timing, you know. They're um, like Benny used to have office hours in Beverly Hills. Those writers had to be there, didn't they? They were there at a certain time. He sat at the table. Nobody took bits home like they do now. You do this and you two writers do. No way. You sat right at the table and started this thing. And I've been in there sometime. Jack and I, we really got along. And I've been in there sometime when they had a line for me to break the building down. Mm -hmm. And Benny would say, no, does not fit his character. I've been too long building it up. In other words, he protected, protected. Mm -hmm. You couldn't go to a theater on Sunday unless the theater manager promised to stop the picture and uh, let you hear the Jack Benny program. Mm -hmm. Ah, here we are, boys. This is Mr. Harris's house. Now look, you kids go up to the door and I'll hide here behind these bushes. Okay. Huh? No, fellas, this has been an awful tame Halloween. Yeah, let's have some fun. Let's tip over Mr. Harris's trash can. Okay, here goes! <laughs> Gee, doesn't he ever buy anything in cans? <laughs> Go, go ahead, go ahead and ring the bell. Okay, I'll ring the bell and then we'll all hide. I guess Mr. Harris isn't home. His wife answered the door. Yeah, look at her standing there. Isn't she beautiful? Well, who is it? Who rang the bell? <laughs> She's beautiful, all right, but she sure got a deep voice. <laughs> Oh, there you are. Hey, you boys out celebrating Halloween? Uh-huh. Trick or treat. Oh, trick or treat, huh? Well, which would you kids rather have? 
We'd rather have the tree. Okay, here goes. Oh, won't you come with me to Alabama? There we'll meet my dear old mammy. She's frying eggs and broiling ham. Bell! That's what I like about the South Hyatt, Jackson. <laughs> you with these boys, or are you working solo? <laughs> Look, I'm with the boys, and we're having a lot of fun playing trick-or-treat. Well, I bet you can't wait till Easter when the fuzzy wuzzy bunny rabbit hides a dead a bitsy egg. <laughs> Never mind that, Phil. You just don't know how to enjoy yourself. Maybe you're right. Come on in, Jackson. Hey, come on in, kids. Okay, come on, Beavers. Come on. Phil, is Alice home? No, Alice took the children to a Halloween party and I had to stay home with her money. <laughs> Well, if you ever need a sitter, call me up. <laughs> so you're, you're here all alone, huh? Yeah, but I don't mind, Jackson. I've been sitting here looking through my old picture album, you know, when I was a kid. Can we see them, Mr. Harris? Sure. Hey, look, there's a picture of me in school when I was in the first grade. See it? Gee, what a cute bunch of little kids. But the teacher looks kind of familiar. That ain't the teacher, that's me. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you were kind of slow in school, weren't you, Phil? Yeah, the teachers didn't seem to like me either. They were always picking on me. Did they make you stand in the corner? Listen, Junior, I stood in the corner so much I was the only kid in class with a triangular forehead. <laughs> triangular forehead? Gee, how'd you get rid of it? He massaged it till the point went to the top. <laughs> Say, Phil, this picture here, that, that's Remley, isn't it? Yeah, that's Frankie. <laughs> that picture was taken 18 years ago, the day he got out of school. Oh, on graduation day. Well, why isn't he wearing a cap and gown? Look, Jackson, the school Remley went to, you didn't graduate. You just had to be able to get over the wall. <laughs> oh. Incidentally, he never would have made it if I wasn't there to give him a boost. <laughs> Phil, I think you're just... Oh, uh, excuse me a minute, Jackson. Hello, this is the residence of Phil Harris and Alice Fayan. Oh, I'm sorry, honey. I didn't know it was you or I'd have given you a top billing. <laughs> no, I'm not alone. Jackson dropped in with a bunch of kids, so I brought out my album and we got to talking about old times. You know, effervescing. That's reminiscing. <laughs> hmm. I know, honey. One of the kids just told me. <laughs> what did you call me for, baby? Uh, oh, okay. I'll be right over and get you. Well, we've got to run along, Phil. Okay, Jackson, see you tomorrow. So long, kids. Bye. Bye. Gee, that Phil Harris is a nice guy. But I wish his wife, Alice Faye, was home. Yeah, she's beautiful. She certainly is. <laughs> she's got the bluest eyes I've ever seen. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Come over here under the street light. <laughs> There. Now, come on, kids. We've got about five more houses. Now, now, look at where we go next. Hey, I know a good Halloween trick. What? Well, there are five of us. Let's go dip over to Mom's house. Well, you married Phil in 1941. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. We're married 45 years. Uh huh. How did you meet? We met uh, through Jack Oakey. Oh, yeah. You're a co-star in uh, yeah, yeah. Great American Broadcast. Yeah, he always said, oh, you'd like Phil a lot. Uh -huh. So 
But we had had our differences before. I had a dog. I lived in Encino. He lived in Encino. And we each had a Doberman Pinscher. And when I'd go to work, my Doberman used to go down into the little city of Encino around the markets there. Everybody mm. loved it. And his, evidently, they met down there and they had a big fight. So Bill called me and told me I should keep my dog at home. And I told him a few things. And uh, so we didn't get along for a long time. And then we finally started dating. And that was it. Well, I don't see how he could have resisted you anyway. <laughs> I don't know. He was pretty mad. <laughs> well, that's just a couple of dogs fighting there. Yeah, this is, right. well, this is, my this dog is. loves your dog. <laughs> I only worked with him, I think, once or twice when he went into television. Mm -hmm. I didn't go. Was there any reason for that? No reason, no. I was doing all right myself. I had Page. my own show to yeah. show you what kind of a man Jack Benny was. Mm -hmm. Jack Benny let me do comedy exactly right following him. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine what I had going in, what kind of account I had going in. I had the highest rating in the world going in, the best rating. Absolutely. And I'm doing comedy. But I mean, what other guy? And then I'm running through the alley after they go to CBS. <laughs> I'm running through the alley to warm my audience up. Mm -hmm. And he's let me off, puts me on the first 15 minutes mm -hmm. so that I can go get out of there and go and, and start my own show. That's a pretty nice guy, isn't it? I would say. Sure, he was, he was doing it. You were both at NBC initially. And then he went to CBS. And he went over to CBS, which was a couple and blocks And it's a block down. away, yeah. a block and a half away. I was seven years on my own program yeah. with Alice, yeah. I'd say my own. And I think four or five of those, I was on Jack's mm -hmm. too, mm -hmm. same time. Mm -hmm. After Jack Benny signed off at 5.30 p.m. Pacific time, the Phil Harris and Alice Faye Show signed on. Benny's famous band leader joined the Fitch bandwagon in 1946. In October of 1948, he and starlet wife Alice Faye were given name billing. Rexall signed on as sponsor. You started your own show on the Fitch bandwagon. I played right? the Fitch bandwagon, and then from there, that's mm -hmm. when I went. Were you I took Cass Daly's place. Were you playing the bandwagon strictly as the band. orchestra? They right? put the bands band. on, that's uh -huh. all. You played tunes. And how did that come about? How did, did they come to you just as the band leader and say, hey, we want you on the... They were putting <laughs> on all kind of bands. Oh, yeah, sure. Every the week Fitch they, bandwagon had a different so, band. So, well, yeah. what the hell? I could, they ran out of people, so they called on me, you know. And okay. Alice Fade been around a little bit, you know. She'd been a star for a hundred years mm -hmm. at the 20th century. That month, their rating was 21.2, fourth highest on the air, and a point higher than Benny's. Good health to all from Rexall. Yes, it's Sunday, time for the Bill Harris Alice Faye Show, presented by the makers of Rexall Drug Products and your Rexall Family Druggist. Good evening. This is your Rexall family druggist taking a little time from behind the prescription counter this Sunday evening to speak for all 10,000 of us. I remember talking to Jack Benny one day because we would also double over and do the Benny show. I would be playing the other character on the Benny show and Phil and I would ride back and forth. 
The sign means that we carry the 2,000... I remember once going from CBS to NBC, we cut across the parking lot because the shows backed into each other. Jack was on out here. Show originated 4 to 4.30, and Phil's show originated when we were both on Sundays, 4.30 to 5. They were on later out here, but that fed New York at 7 o'clock, I guess. And they got a two-passenger bicycle for Phil and I to ride, so they get publicity shots of us. <laughs> we almost blew both shows, because neither of us can handle a bike. And now your Rexall family druggist brings you the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show, written by Ray Singer and Dick Chevrolet, with Elliot Lewis, Walter Tetley, Robert North, Janine Roos, Anne Whitfield, Walter Scharf and his music, yours truly, Bill Foreman, and starring Alice Faye and Phil Harris. <laughs> It is four o'clock in the Harris household, and the children have just arrived home from school. They're an hour late, and Phil and Alice are a little upset. Well, it's about time you children got home. Where have you been? Yeah, why were you so late? The teacher kept us after school, Daddy. Yeah, she said the homework we did last night was all wrong. So? (laughs) My children can't grasp the simple things they teach in the elementary grades. The trouble is you don't pay no attention. You think you know everything. You won't listen to your elders. Now, after this, if you have any trouble, come to me with your homework. That's what we did last night, Dad. (laughs) Oh. And what makes your teacher so sure it was wrong? George Washington was our first president, not Petrillo. Well, that's a moot point. Daddy, the teacher gave us these pamphlets for you to read. Let me see them, children. Hmm. These might help you, Phil. Political history of our country, current issues of the political campaign, party platforms... Hold it, Myrtle, hold it. Just... Take it easy. You might not know it, but I don't have to read pamphlets to know what's going on in this country. I'm right up to the minute on world affairs and current events, like every good American citizen should be. Well, I'm glad you feel that way, because there's something I forgot to tell you. The election committee called, and they want us to help out at the election on Tuesday. Election? Mm-hmm. Somebody's running for something? <laughs> well, we're voting for a president. They want me to work at the polls, and they want you to go around the neighborhood and get the people to vote. Oh, but Alice, I can't be bothered with that stuff. Let somebody else do it. Oh, Phil, that's not the right attitude. This is an important election. That's right, Daddy. The teacher says it's the duty of everyone to do their part. Please do it, Daddy. We'll be proud of you. You'll be running the election and helping to pick the president. Yes, Phyllis, but I can... Running the election, huh? I'll be picking a president, huh? Well, if it's up to me to pick them, we don't need no election. We'll call the whole thing off. I'll make big changes. Bill. Yes, big changes. I'll make a clean sweep of the whole country. I'll do... Bill, stop swinging your arms. If anybody came in and Yes, sir, me... I'll sweep everything. Bill, look what you did. Oh, well, gee, I didn't know that anybody was in back of me. It's my brother, William. You knocked him out. <laughs> Oh, as I was saying, I'll sweep everybody. Bill, Bill, 
don't let him lie there. Help him up. Okay, okay. How is he, Phil? How is he? Is he unconscious? With Willie, it's hard to tell. <laughs> yeah, he's out all right, honey, but I'll bring him to Well, him. hurry, Phil. Rub his wrist. Slap his face. Not with your fist. Oh, all right. Come on, Willie. Willie, come on. Snap out of it. Willie, come on. Snap. I'm sorry it happened. I didn't even know you were there, and I... <sighs> Well, Willie, say something, Willie. Speak to me. Good morning, Philip. For that, I had to bring him, too. I'm glad you're all right, Willie. It was an accident. I don't believe it. I think he did it on purpose. Oh, don't be ridiculous. Phil would never hit you on purpose, would you, Phil? Nah. Carried away with himself when I told him about his being appointed to the election committee. Yes, sir, and they showed great judgment. Who could do a better job of getting those women out to vote? Why, I'll have them dames eaten out of my hand. All I got to do is call at their homes, turn on that Harris charm, and I'll have all Hold them women it, coming. Buster. To... Hold it. <laughs> Philip, frankly, I don't think the committee made a very wise choice. The importance of voting in this election should be explained to the people, and I don't think you're capable of doing it. I doubt if you even know who's running. I don't know who's... Oh, Oglethorpe. <laughs> Homer J. Oglethorpe, please. Go buy yourself a new snuff box. But you know, answer me. Who is running? Oh, you don't know, huh? Well, of course I know. Among the candidates, Thomas E. Dewey, Harry Truman, Henry Wallace, Norman Thomas, and J. Strom Thurmond. But of course. <laughs> I hope you know, Phil. I didn't want to tell you, but several of the committee members questioned your ability to do the job. In fact, a few of them are coming over this evening. They questioned my ability. My ability. Well. (laughs) This is... This is the sort of a thing that cuts a man to the quick. Bill, they're just coming over to find out if you're capable of handling it. You have to have a knowledge of politics in case people ask questions. Let them ask questions. Let them ask questions. Let them interrogate me. What was that last word? Me. Yeah, me. Me. (laughs) I can explain to those people the importance of voting this year. It's the political issues involved which concern the, uh, well, the, uh, I'll get it. Glad that bell rang. I really don't know too much about this. There must be some way I can find out before election. Hi, Curly. Frankie. Hey. Hey, what do you know about politics? Everything. (laughs) I probably know as much about politics as I do about music. Uh Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. (laughs) Not if there's anything you want to know, just ask me. I'll take a chance. Now, look. Who are you voting for in the presidential election? I ain't voting. I don't believe in changing presidents. Well, some people think we should. Well, that's because they haven't followed the career of our president as closely as I have. I say the man's doing a good job. And as long as he continues to do a good job, let's keep Hoover there. Frankie. Yes? Mr. Truman is the president of the United States, not Hoover. Oh, oh, of course. I was thinking of Canada. (laughs) 
Now, is there anything else you want to know? Yeah. Have you seen a doctor about that slow leak in your head? <laughs> Look, Remley, I'm on the election committee, and they're coming over tonight to find out what I know about the different parties. Curly, your education's been sadly neglected. Didn't you learn anything in school? First thing they taught me was that there are two major parties, the Whigs and the Tories. <laughs> Those two I know about. There's more? <laughs> well, there must be. There are a lot of other fellas running this year. There's Harry Truman, Thomas E. Dewey, Henry Wallace, J. Strom Thurmond, and Thomas. Thomas? John Charles. <laughs> Look, Remley, you know even less than I do about this, and it's our duty to find out about it. I hope you realize the importance of voting. Well, of course I do. Look at my poor father. One year he didn't vote, and they passed prohibition. <laughs> and what's wrong with prohibition? I mean, worse things than that can happen, like having an atom bomb go off in your hand or something. I mean, after all, Remley, you don't know anything. Don't you know anybody that I can talk to who knows politics? Well, why do you have to know about it? Well, because we have to know what we're doing when we vote. If we pick the wrong guy, we can get into as much trouble as people did when they had that, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar. What was wrong with him? Well, besides his name. What was wrong with him? Oh. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. Radio writer, director, and actor Elliot Lewis played Frank Remley in a take on Phil's real-life band member. Remley had worked Benny's show, who often singled him out for critical comment. Harris's character was lazy, shiftless, stupid, and alcoholic, and Remley, while never given a voice on Benny's program, became the point man for Harris's virtues. On The Harris Show, the Frank Remley gag was expanded into a speaking role. Remley played the part in the first episode, but it didn't work. Elliot Lewis turned the role into a comic masterpiece. I asked Jack once why, because I, I was really serious. We were getting big, big laughs, and I wasn't sure why. I was very happy that we were getting laughs, and so was Phil, and so were the writers. But I wasn't sure why, and I asked Jack. And he said, well, I think it's because the two of you, when there's a really difficult situation, do and say what everybody would really like to do and say if they had the nerve. And they don't have the nerve, so they laugh because you really do. You know, and you just do. And it's funny that way. And I'll tell you something else about Elliot Lewis. He is a very astute guy. And he said at the time, and he's lived it out, that he would never work with anybody after me. And he never did. Yeah, we were like clockwork. See, he did the Mully guy and two or three things on the Benny show mm -hmm. when I was on that show. And then when we came in, we fit together like a glove. And like he said, and he had to say several occasions to work with other people. And he said, no, not after Phil. And then he went into producing, mm -hmm. as you know. Hey, Curly, I've been thinking. Why do you have to ask somebody about politics? 
Books have been written on the subject. You must have one in the house. Yeah, yeah, we must have. Hey, hmm? let's look at my book collection and see. Your book collection? <laughs> Naturally. I have quite an extensive library. Mm-hmm. There they are. Go ahead, look for yourself. Oh. Rubiata of Omer Khayyam. <laughs> Emerson's Essays. Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. Masochistic Tendencies of the Malayan. That one was excellent. A smasher. You liked it, huh? Well, that and Homer's Iliad, I, I just couldn't put them down. I, I suggest you read it, Mr. Remley. Yes, maybe I would. No. I'll wait till I make the picture. <laughs> See what else you got here The architectural influence of the Elizabethan era The Rover Boys at Tehachapi The cast also featured Gail Gordon, Robert North, Janine Roos, Ann Whitfield, and Walter Tetley I need to ask you about Walter Tetley now, he was on the Gildersleeve uh, radio yes. show as yes. uh, his Gildersleeve's nephew, Leroy. Mm-hmm. And he was a wise yeah, kid on that show. But kid. on your show, he was the grocery boy. Brung the groceries. Julius yeah. Abruzio. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Brung the groceries. Brung the groceries. <laughs> and it's funny. I've been thinking about it, and hey, uh, maybe I shouldn't serve on that committee. Oh, but Phil, I think you should. It's important to call at people's homes and get them out to vote. I know that, but they're going to ask me questions, and if I can't answer them, they won't even let me in their homes. How much time did you have to devote to that radio show, generally speaking? We had a rehearsal on Friday, mm-hmm. and then we rehearsed Sunday morning, and then we did the show Sunday afternoon. So it was basically two days. Yeah. You never saw the script before you walked in on a oh, Friday, no. probably. Never. Of course, the characters were so well-defined. Yeah, after you, you a while, knew what you were fell doing. into it. One of the highlights was your song and Phil's song, yes. too, but that's what, what we look forward to yes. in every show, that the, the musical breaks. And yeah, we had Walter Scharf. Uh-huh. His, you know, music, he was a wonderful, wonderful arranger, Walter. Gonna do it that way, Remley. The show would peak in December with a 26 point rating. Writers Ray Singer and Dick Chevalier had to account for five minutes of necessary cuts because of audience laughter. But network radio would change forever in January of 1949 when Jack Benny jumped to CBS. The Phil Harris and Alice Faye show remained on NBC. It created a time problem. The networks were two blocks apart, and the shows were back-to-back. Harris would now only be in the first half of the Benny show. He would leave CBS by 4.15, cut through the parking lots between the studios, and knock on NBC's back door. Then, he would step onto his own stage, warm up his audience, and go on the air. But after Benny jumped, Phil Harris and Alice Faye lost 40% of their audience in a single month. That trend would continue into the spring. The show would never see a rating higher than 14 again. 
in the beginning when that show first came on, it was live, and I suspect that you had to do at least one, possibly two broadcasts every week. Was there a West Coast and an East Coast, or did you just do one? That's right, we did. I think the show really came into its own when Rexall came in because right. the uh, first of all, all the well, we were rolling then. I yeah, mean, we really yeah. had it. We and had I, tremendous writers too, yeah. and it was all terrific. It was really going. Ray Singer and Dick Chevrolet. Yeah, they were yeah. terrific. You came in at a just perfect time for radio, yeah, 46. Right. Yeah, right. But by the time you left in 54, so much television had yeah. come in on this. Well, Phil wouldn't do it. I'm sorry. I think that's one thing I really am sorry for uh -huh. that we didn't go into television. Well, he didn't want to do it. He couldn't see another family show on TV. He was afraid. It's too bad because I would say that the Phil Harris Alice Faye show was not another family show. It was no, a very special it show. It was very, it was and, really fun. And your personalities could have easily translated to, uh, yeah, to television. Yeah, he couldn't see it. You couldn't tell him that. Maybe he didn't want all the extra work. TV is a hard <clears throat> I don't know. He did have a hard time, really, didn't he, for a while, or running, doing the Benny show, and then boom, immediately... Uh, oh, yeah. Doing, yeah, because uh, in and, the rehearsals and everything. Yeah. yeah. I don't particularly like to work with my husband. I don't believe in wives and husbands working together. Mm -hmm. But that's just my opinion. <clears throat> I worked with him, but we didn't hit it off too well while we were working together. He's a little rough. During that whole radio period there, from yeah. uh, 46 to 54? Yeah. yeah. But I, I made it, but I didn't. I wasn't too happy. Mm -hmm. But I enjoyed it. You Please, were an uh, excellent actress on that program. Yeah, you brought yeah. a lot of spark yeah, and, and life to the. Well, like I, you know, it's like anything you do, you get better and better uh -huh. and better. But uh -huh. a husband tends to pick on you, where somebody uh -huh. else won't pick or on he, you. Well, he might not pick on somebody well, else. He wouldn't either, pick on Mary Benny. Uh, he yeah. wouldn't pick on anybody right. else, but he'd pick on uh -huh. me. See, so. Actually, that part I didn't care for. March, 1835, Paris, France. Dear Aaron, I have thought long about idea. It is the best way. I accept your proposition. By the time you read letter, I and Raya will be on ship to Quebec. I will bring one pound of my inheritance, rest arriving on ship this summer as we have arranged. We expect a reliable guide to wait for us in Quebec. I will send letter when we reach land in America. Doskoroi Streci, Countess Sorina Maria Derzinskaya Zubov. Sorina! We must pack, little sister. It is time to go to America. Don't be fooled. Danger is coming. Premiering soon on your favorite podcast app, Burning Gotham, the new scripted audio fiction podcast set in 1835 New York City. Subscribe to this audio feed to learn more or go to burninggotham.com.
You see, I always felt that we had to work with an all-physical person. We always worked from the the full person. At least I did, and I know that all of us tried to work that way because that's the only honest way to do it. You have you have to have a person who lives and breathes and walks and is alive, rather than just turning on a voice, because you could conjure up if you really had through imagination anything that you wanted to be. That's why I loved it too, because I could play opposite. Jimmy Stewart, or Frederick March, or Cary Grant, or Gary Cooper, or Leslie Howard,、mm-hmm. and on the air I could be the most glamorous, gorgeous, tall, black-haired female you've ever seen in your life. Whatever I wished to be,、mm-hmm. I could be with my voice. That was the thrilling part to me. Halloween night in Los Angeles was relatively quiet. Police reported only twenty cases of broken windows. Attributed to teenagers and not trick or treaters. Meanwhile, on the air, NBC and CBS's network dominance was being broken into by the American Broadcasting Company. ABC had found gold and stopped the music, their hour-long 8 p.m. musical game show. It was inexpensive and multi-sponsored. Your attention, America. You hear the beat of the clock. Before the next hour is up, any minute, any second, you may be richer by thousands of dollars in prizes. Because right now, from coast to coast, it's time to play "Stop the Music." Harry Solver in the orchestra. The song to Kay Arm and a Dick Brown. The first half of "Stop the Music" aired opposite Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy on NBC. Meanwhile, on CBS. The Adventures of Sam Spade took to the air from Hollywood. The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective, brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic, the non-alcoholic hair tonic that contains lanolin. Wild Root Cream Oil, again and again, the choice of men and women and children too. Sweetheart, write this down.、Oh, yes, Sam. I have pencil and paper ready. Ingredients: colon. Punctuation or ingredients, Sam? Both. Well, what is it, Sam? A recipe. One pound of fennel. Oh, that's liquid measure, Sam. You put that in later. Cross out funnel. Not funnel, fennel. It is not liquid. It grows in fairly pines. It's fairly what, Sam? One root of St. John's wort. Who's wort? Not wort, wort. Oh. Don't interrupt. Some、uh, new size, a couple pounds ought to be enough. One ounce of bat's wool, one adder fork—that is not a utensil. One fillet of fenny snake, some lizard's legs, one hemlock root digged in the dark. Directions: In the poisoned entrails throw toad that under cold stone days and nights has thirty-one. And if anyone drops in for trick or treat, Effie, leave him have it. Oh, Sam, now I get it. Halloween. It's a witch's brew. <laughs> you were only fooling. That's what you think, sweetheart. Get out your cauldron, your poison pen, and your book of malefactions. I'll be right down to dictate my report on the fairly bright caper, or I should have stood in bed and ducked for apples. Dash.
Marshall Hammett, America's leading detective fiction writer and creator of Sam Spade, the hard-boiled private eye, and William Spear, radio's outstanding producer-director of mystery and crime drama, join their talents to make your hair stand on end with the adventures of Sam Spade. Presented by the makers of Wild Root Cream Oil for the hair. Are they saying this about you? There goes somebody who's really well-groomed. And that can go for every member of your family if they spruce up each day with Wild Root Cream Oil. This Halloween episode featured Lorene Tuttle doubling as a witch and Hollywood A-lister and wife of director Bill Spear, June Havoc, playing an uncredited lead. June Havoc, who was Bill Spear's wife, occasionally played a part in Sam Spade so she could spend Sunday with her husband. That's an interesting point, by the way. Uh, there were many after people then who weren't surviving, and Lorene Tuttle made an impassioned plea with Bill Spear one time to have June come in and visit, but couldn't you give the parts you give to her to someone who needs to work? <laughs> hmm. And that didn't please anybody too much. Yeah, I imagine. <laughs> It's only two devils that blow through a murderer's bones to and fro in the ghost's moonshine. Oh, Sam, take off that ridiculous mask. <sighs> you look about as much like a demon. As a demon, check. Uh, fly your broom into the adjoining office, sister, and we'll weave a few spells. Uh, date, uh, Effie. Yes, Sam? What is this thing on my desk? Looks like a pumpkin. It is a pumpkin. I made it this afternoon. Here, I'll light it. Well, isn't that cute? Isn't that cute? Eyes and nose and mouth. Looks like Lieutenant Dundee of Homicide. Well, thank you, Sam. Thank you. Well, I guess everyone knows it's Halloween, even if they don't listen to the radio. Shall we? We shall. Uh, date, All Hallows' Eve, 1948, to Hillary Bright Esquire, number 13, Black Place, City, from Samuel Spade, license number 137596. Subject, the Fairly Bright Caper. It was a fairly bright afternoon for the fog-bound Bay Area. There was no frost upon the pumpkin. In fact, there's yet no pumpkin. But I did see a black cat and several attractive wolf girls in broomstick skirts during the bus ride down the peninsula to your client's ancestral estate, Fairly Pines. A bat flew out of a hollow tree as I mushed up a road through some pine woods to the house. In the gathering dusk, I also observed the toad a lizard and a hooty owl, which, if memory serves, are staple ingredients for a witch's brew. Then I observed, hobbling out of the forest, an authentic hag. She was wearing a dusty black robe, a peaked black hat, and her matted gray hair coiled serpent-like around her evil countenance. She leaned on a gnarled staff of hemlock, fixed me with her yellow, glittering eyes, and said, Hello, kiddo. Yes, am Which way's the house? Which house? Fairly Pines. Lost my bearings, I did. I was looking for some fennel. Oh. I got the bat's wool right enough and newt's legs. Couldn't find no adder's forks, but reckon this here copperhead will do the trick. Uh, what are you going to do with all that stuff? It's for the brew. I'm the witch I hired for tonight. Name's Gudge. Born Sophia, but of course I don't have no Christian name anymore since I sold out to old scratch. Meet me down on my price, he did, too. Look at that wart on my nose. What nose? Huh? Uh, the house is up that way. Mind if I walk along with you, pretty boy? I don't like girls. Huh? Uh, no, not at all, uh, ma'am. No need to be afeard. 
With the scroungy fee they are obeying me, they'll be lucky if I give them a whiff of brimstone. Uh, not so close, please. But I did promise one manifestation and the scream of a soul in dormant is the witching hour. Yeah. Mr. Hillary Bright. Oh, you're the detective, Miss Spade? Right. Oh, well, I'm Homer Langdon, attorney for the Fairly Estate. Uh, come along, I'll take you to him. Sorry for that challenge just now. I've been hearing strange noises around the grounds. You notice anything peculiar as you came up the road? Uh, well, there was an old lady. I use the term loosely. Looking for Fennel? Yeah. Uh, that's the witch. Mr. Bright hired her for the party tonight. Takes her work kind of seriously, doesn't she? Well, you know how it is. Seasonal work. What does she do between Halloweens? Claims she hibernates. Got to feel you. Mrs. Fairley Spade, she's uh, eccentric. Don't let her know. Check. Oh, here I am, Homer. What was it you wanted? Oh, it's the man from the caterer. No, Ophelia. This is Mr. Spade, the detective that Mr. Bright employed. Oh, well, about that recipe for the aspic. Cook says she's never heard of putting fennel and lizard's claws in a tomato aspic. And Mr. Bright says hemlock is poison. Uh, you've got it mixed up, Ophelia. That's the recipe for the witch's brew. Well, anyway, the grocer says he doesn't stock them, so you'll have to garnish it with parsley. Uh, Ophelia, he's not the caterer. He's the detective. Oh! Well, keep your eye on those pumpkins. Mice, you know. Mice? You know. Mice. Pumpkins? hire an assistant. I don't like hanging him in the house anyway. We we don't even know who he is. What are they up to now? Halloween comes but once a year. Oh, it's a skeleton, part of the decoration. Uh, Hillary. Oh, yes, Omar. I couldn't find the witch, but here's the detective. Oh, well, you can have the witch. I'll take him. Oh, watch what you're doing, Wilma. The ladder. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, this just about completes the arrangements. Oh, this is Miss Wilma Fairley, for whom I'm managing this nauseous ball, Sam Spade. Hillary, is that any way to speak about a girl's fifth engagement party? Uh, forgive me if I'm guilty of understatement. Oh, fix that wire, Wilma. The top of Frankenstein's head's caving in. And look at that, the bolts are coming out of his neck already. Oh, well, come along, Spade. And I'll tell you how you fit into this mess. See you at the party, Sam. Oh, in here, Spade. Privacy. I uh, don't think we're quite alone, are uh, we? 99%. This is fairly fiancé number five, Ralph Cram by name. Oh, wake up, Ralph. Oh, uh, don't bother. He uh, started the party a little early? Mm, before lunch. But can you blame him? <laughs> if I weren't a teetotaler, I'd be out staggering around the woods with, with that witch. Uh-huh. Now, uh, what exactly is my assignment, Mr. Bright? I want you to be present at this miserable party tonight and pretend to have a good time. Why didn't you hire an actor? <clears throat> This is a new kind of masquerade ball. Even I have a unique problem here. A Halloween party combined with a party announcing the engagement of a socially prominent young woman. <laughs> well, naturally, the press will be on hand. They always are at my parties. But I doubt if any of the invited guests will show up. That's where you come in. 
You are one of the uninvited guests. I don't get it. Well, it's very simply this. I have a reputation to maintain. I'm sure you have better things to do than read the society page, so I'll, I'll explain. I believe some ill-informed columnists have referred to me as the male Elsa Maxwell. That's not true. She is the male Hillary Bright. Uh, female, that is. Uh, anyway, you're a professional party giver, is that it? Uh, exactly. What's the matter with Wilma? Why won't anybody come to her party? Because everyone on the guest list is either a relative or a friend of some poor swain she has jilted on the very steps of the altar. Oh, now I get it. Exactly. Now, as to the party. Masquerade. Natch. What else can you have on Halloween? Figures. Yes. If anyone came, they'd probably be dressed as witches or pumpkins, mm. which is dull enough in itself. Quite so. But the fairies in their immediate circle will undoubtedly trot out their moth-eaten Beaux-Arts costume. Oh, Langdon is Louis the Fourteenth. Wilma and her mother trying to look like Greek goddesses and some old drapes from a Fanchon and Marco idea. What about the boyfriend here? Well, you can see how hideous it's all going to be. And Life magazine has promised to cover it. Well, I simply had to do something. Well, what about the boyfriend? I think it's the party idea of the year. Twenty uninvited guests who will come as themselves. Uh, who's my date, the witch? Oh, isn't she priceless? <laughs> you know, I thought of burning her at the stake as the grand climax of the evening. I've got matches. No, I decided against it. It's too messy. Well, it sounds like loads of fun, Mr. Bright, but I'm afraid you called the wrong detective. Now, so wait I'll... a minute, please. Hear me out. Now, there's method in my madness. I believe I mentioned twenty uninvited guests. Who were coming as themselves, yes. Exactly. Well, I've gone to a great deal of trouble and expense getting together a really colorful group. All authentic types. A gangster, a shrimp fisherman, a swami, three bubble dancers, three. a gypsy, hmm, a paroled axe murderer, a sand hog. Oh, that reminds me, I must see whether the blubber arrived for that Eskimo they're flying down from Nome. Yeah, well... well what uh... I'm getting at, Spade, is that with a collection of people like that, well, anything might happen. Yeah, yeah, well, why didn't you invite the uh, local police force? Oh, they're coming in costume, of course. Good, then you won't need me. Besides, I get $800 a day in expenses. Mr. Spade, at the last party our local chief of police attended, the guests were held up and robbed of $50,000 worth of jewels, including the chief's gold badge. So, you see, we do need you. Hey, hey, what's that? Oh, go back to sleep, Ralph. It's only the guests arriving. I get $1,000 a day. You did need a detective. In fact, you could have used several others. First, the pickpocket you'd invited lifted the police chief's wallet. The axe murderer chased the witch up a tree. And the gangster and the cowboy tried to shoot it out over one of the bubble dancers. After I'd foiled a safecracker in the act of blowing the vault in the library, things quieted down and everybody formed a circle around a, a bonfire. All right, quiet, please. Quiet, everyone. Quiet. Mrs. Fairley has a very important announcement to make. Ophelia? She was here just a few moments ago. Well, have you seen her around Langdon? A few minutes ago. She said she had a headache and went upstairs to get some aspirin. Sam, I'm worried about Mother. Would you mind going upstairs to see what she's up to? She's been behaving so strangely tonight. She's been behaving strangely. Uh, sure, uh, Wilma, I'll be right well, back. Come along, let's get on with it. A witch. Agent! You, you stand over here. Here? No, 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 bring your broom. <laughs> That's it. And don't look so pleasant. You're supposed to be evil. <laughs> Beware! Those not wearing tote bane is subject to warts. There's evil in this place tonight. Blood on the stone, blood in the cauldron. I hated to miss the manifestation, and I hoped I'd get back in time for the scream of the soul in torment the witch had promised earlier in the evening. 
I cased the rooms on the second floor. Wilma's fiancé, Ralph Cram, was in one of them, asleep. Ophelia wasn't in any of them. But in one of the bedrooms, I found something that puzzled me. A rope made out of bed sheets dangled out of the window, but the window was closed. I walked over and opened it. The witch was still at it. I couldn't see the merry little group around the bonfire, but where the firelight glowed against the tree trunks at the edge of the woods, I saw a white-robed figure crouching in the shadows. Then I heard it. at the foot of a big pine tree at the edge of the clearing. A single slug had entered her body just below her left shoulder blade. If this was part of Mr. Bright's Halloween production, I thought he'd overdone it just a little because she was dead. As nearly as I could reconstruct it, Wilma had been standing outside the circle of people grouped around the fire as if somebody in the woods had called to her and she'd left the group to investigate. She'd been facing the fire when she was shot. Then what about the two shots that had missed her? The killer had been aiming at her and missed. He couldn't have avoided hitting somebody else in the crowd. I went back to the house to check the guests. All there, unwounded and accounted for, except the witch. According to the local chief of police, it was rapidly turning into a toad. She had flown away on a broom. I checked my nose for warts. The makers of Wild Root Cream Oil are presenting the weekly Sunday adventure of Dashiell Hammett's famous private detective... Sam Spade. I don't think anything of this kind had been done because we had a lot of tongue-in-cheek stuff, and we—I used to do a little ad-libbing now and then if I felt like it, and it was kind of fun. In the final years, we used to rehearse. See, we were supposed to be there at eleven thirty on a Sunday. I'd come in from Malibu. I was living in the colony then. And the first half hour, we were like a family, everybody, you know, we all worked together. Mostly we had the same people on all the time. Johnny McIntyre and his wife, Jeanette Nolan, and Hans Conrad. Hans Conrad, uh, Bill Conrad was on. Elliot Lewis. Elliot Lewis, 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 uh, Elliot Reed, uh, Elliot's then wife, Kathy Lewis. And uh, June Havoc, we mustn't forget that uh, she was on there, too. I was going to mention June, and June and Kathy used to play a lot of the girls, uh, most of the, uh, the leading ladies. And the first half hour was always kind of, we hadn't seen each other, so we just a lot of gags, and so that was devoted to sort of a social time. Then we eventually got around to reading the script, and then Bill and I would start to rewrite it. <laughs> 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 Which was fun, too. Your we secretary? Had kind of a contest between the two of them. <laughs> no, I'd say, look, Bill, uh, this is pretty good here. And he says, well, I don't, I, look, I've got it already written down, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's going to be. So it was kind of a friendly camaraderie, rivalry, whatever, but I think we loved each other. For a deeper look at the adventures of Sam Spade, listen to Breaking Walls, episode 105. Time now for Rocky Jordan. <laughs> It was a hot afternoon in Cairo when she walked into the cafe tambourine. She was beautiful, but there was something else. Something so wrong with the picture that I couldn't take my eyes off her. It wasn't the blonde hair piled on top of her head or the dress that clung to her like a football player covering a fumble, nor even the set expression on her face. But when she stopped in front of me, I knew what it was. 
She was all woman, but not an inch under six feet four. Again, we bring you a story of adventure with a man named Rocky Jordan, proprietor of the Cafe Tambourine in Cairo. Cairo, gateway to the ancient East, where modern life unfolds against the backdrop of antiquity. Tonight's story, The Bartered Bridegroom. We've had a pretty fair assortment of customers in the tambourine. Almost anything on feet. But when I looked up into that icy-faced six-feet-four of blonde female, I knew we had our first Amazon. You're ready, Mr. Jordan? Uh, ready? You're wasting time, Jordan. I didn't catch the name. Lily Carroll. You're being rude. The face is familiar. Maybe we met in Istanbul. No, Jordan. Alexandria, maybe? The arrangements are made. You're stalling. <laughs> Look, uh, suppose we take it from the top of the page, Miss Carroll. Naturally, you're interested in the money. This, too, has been taken care of. Now about the ceremony. Ceremony? The wedding. Be there in an hour. Oh, sure. I'll be there in plenty of time. I'm a great believer in weddings. Well, by the way, uh, who's getting married? I am, Mr. Jordan. To you. Um, maybe we'd better go into my office. That will not be necessary. Timmy Rogers has made all the arrangements. Timmy Rogers? Now, I know we'd better go into the office. She sat across the desk from me and lit a king-sized cigarette. The hand that held the match wore a queen-sized diamond. It sent a reflection against the wall. I didn't like the way the reflection quivered. Her face was under control, but her hands gave her away. She was a nervous bride. Timmy should have explained these details. If I know Timmy Rogers, he doesn't bother with details. That's unfortunate. Nevertheless, in one hour, you and I shall be married. You will receive $5,000, is that clear? Oh, very it is not enough money? Oh, that's not entirely it, Miss Karoff. Having never been married before... You are being rude again. I plan to leave Cairo immediately after the ceremony. Really? Tell me, Miss Karoff, um, where are we going on our honeymoon? Enough, Jordan. I will not be insulted further. You will receive the $5,000 as soon as I have sold my interest in the Club Fashad. Fashad? Oh, yeah, yeah. Now I remember you and Mike Sloan bought that together recently. Yes, but I am selling my interest. It's a matter of business falling off? No, not business. You see, I'm a white Russian. Certain of my friends have been disappearing lately. I do not wish the same thing to happen to me. I see. But this is not what I came to talk about. Now, the wedding... Look, Lily, I've got news for you. I'm not in the mood for marriage. Your moods do not interest me, Jordan. You are going to marry me. Hmm. And I'll admit you're more persuasive with a gun. You will not refuse me. Maybe it didn't occur to you, Lil, but you can't marry a dead man. Ah, come on, put the gun away. There are many other ways to make certain you do not back out. Jordan, be at my club in one hour. It means your life. She moved out of the office as silently as an Arab folding his tent. I followed her out in time to see her climb into a black sedan two feet shorter than the Queen Mary. 
It faded off into the crowded street. I stood there trying to figure out where I could rent a tux cheap when a hand thumped against my back. I turned to see a watered-down version of Tyrone Power, all of five feet five in his elevated shoes. It was none other than the little fixer himself, Timmy Rogers. Rocky, old kid, I just saw her leaving. Congratulations, kid. Uh, this makes my day complete. I'm so happy for you, kid. You'll make a lovely bridegroom. Slow down, kid. You're drooling on my wedding suit. <laughs> what a woman. You're a picker, Jordan, if I ever saw one. Aren't you forgetting one little item? You picked her, not me. A mere formality. Greatest girl this side of Minsk. Well, at least the biggest. But, Rock, kid, for $2,000, how can you miss? It's even less interesting for 2000 Huh? How's that, Rock? Lily offered me five. Well, what do you know? She really must be scared. Okay, suppose you give me the straight story. Well, Rock, uh, well, well, I'll tell you. You're still I... listening. Well, look, why don't you and I go into the bar for a drink, Rock, and I'll tell you all about it. I followed the little man into the bar. We pulled up on a couple of empty stools by the open front door. Timmy Rogers rubbed his hands, licked his lips, and ordered a double orange blossom. Ah, orange blossom for a wedding day, huh, Rock? Ah. Now, where was I? You and Lily Karoff, remember? <clears throat> yeah. Well, sir, Rock, it's like this. Lil has a few roulette wheels out in the back room of her joint, as you know. Hmm. The other night I ran into as tough a streak of luck as has been seen in Cairo since Happy Harper was picked up for trying to sell some tourists the Sphinx. How much? Uh, how much? Uh, how much? Uh, well, I, uh, I dropped $5,000, which it just so happens I couldn't cover at the bank. Mm -hmm. So then came Lily. Yeah. Lily made me a proposition. She'll forget the 5000 if I marry her. Sure. But it turns out she's looking for an American. She wants a ticket to the USA. Oh, that pitch, huh? Well, can't say that I blame her, Rock. Things can get pretty rough around Cairo for the wrong... Hey, hey, hold it. Huh? That guy's been staring at me too long. Standing there in the open doorway was a brown suit full of balloon-shaped Egyptian. His eyes didn't leave my face as he hooked his cane over one arm and smoothed his white gloves with his hand. At 8.30 p.m. Pacific time from KNX's Hollywood Studios, Rocky Jordan re-debuted on CBS. It was a revival of a man named Jordan. You are Mr. Rocky Jordan? Yeah. It aired over CBS's West Coast Network and starred Hollywood character actor Jack Moyles. Yeah, what's on your mind? Jordan's code of ethics was rooted in practicality. He was strongly motivated by money, and his search for fortune was often wrapped up in dangerous adventure. Indeed I am not. The main change from a man named Jordan was the moving of Rocky's Cafe Tambourine from Istanbul to Cairo. $10,000 if you do not go through with this wedding. Ten? Huh. It's the best offer I've had all day. In cash, Mr. Jordan. If it makes you feel any better, Pasha, you can forget... <laughs> Writers Larry Roman and Cornell Cool strove for authenticity and flavor. The cafe was given no street or number, but the surrounding Cairo streets were real. Most of the info came from the Army's pocket guide to Egypt. Roman and Cool were also aided at one point by Egyptian writer Andro Bittar. Ideas came from true tales in newspapers. 
Jordan usually got involved by happenstance. This brought him into contact with Captain Sam Sabaya of the Cairo Police, voiced by Jay Novello. Original music was by Richard Orrant, and Larry Thor handled announcing. Rocky Jordan is presented from Columbia Square in Hollywood and stars Jack Moyles in the title role. Tonight's story was written by Gomer Cool and William Frug, produced and directed by Cliff Howell with original music by Milton Charles. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. I used to do a roundup, and we'd call in eight or ten capitals of the world. We were beginning to have a staff in each of the great cities, full-time, not stringers. Now, I got word just before I went on that we would go Paris first and then London. So I introduced Paris, and Paris was on. As I was sitting there, and my head was down, musing and listening to what was coming from Paris, while with the other ear I was listening to London, upcoming London, I heard a voice say, look up, Ben. And there was the director of the program in behind the glass booth with a piece of paper written on it, Spain, and signaling me, not London, Spain, Spain. When we finished the show, I suddenly said, oh, who said, look up, Ben, what was all that? He said, with 30 seconds to go, London coming, RCA said they now have the Madrid circuit, and I wanted to get it fast before we lose it. I wrapped in the glass, and you didn't uh, respond. You couldn't hear me. I thought, maybe you're plugged into London. So I said, hey, Fred Bate, I think Ben is plugged into you. Tell him to look up. So Jack's voice went out to London, 3,000 miles. Bates said, hey, look up, Ben. Came back to me 3,000 miles, and I looked up six feet into the director's eye. The only non-NBC time slot winner on Sunday nights was ABC at 9 p.m. with Walter Winchell's Jurgen's Journal and its 15.4 rating. The news show helped him become the most powerful reporter in the country. In a 1948 Collier's Magazine article, Winchell declared himself a protector of the little people. Winchell was clocked at 215 words per minute. Mr. Winston Churchill, however, and Lord Rothenier, the British publisher, are not that optimistic. British preparation for war continues on emergency basis. The Washington ticker. As of tonight, Democratic leaders privately give Mr. Truman only two states north of the Ohio. Their confidential polls also indicate that Governor Dewey is leading by at least 10 million. The campaign headquarters. This is the irony of politics. Chester Bowles, fired for urgent price ceilings, which Mr. Truman now wants back, is running 50,000 ahead of the president in the Connecticut polls. Selective service. Only one out of each 38 draft registrants is likely to be inducted. The Pentagon. The big scotch and soda talk in Washington tonight is that Defense Secretary James Forrestal is slated for the presidency of the Texas Oil Company if the Republicans win. Mr. and Mrs. United States, this is to respectfully disagree with the President of the United States. The current spy investigation is not a red herring. Our top intelligence chiefs believe that it is a great menace, and surely their files are open to the White House. A story never made public before, but which the best newspaper people in Washington, D.C. believe is this. About a year ago, the president 
was on the verge of elevating a man to one of the most important international positions in the world. Our intelligence department, learning of it, rushed over to the White House at midnight and confronted the President of the United States with a report on this man. As a result, Mr. President canceled this important elevation. The person involved was recently investigated by Congress. Evidence at midnight in the White House is still evidence before Congress. The truth is that the deepest secrets of our government, shared not even by the American people, were an open book in Moscow. As far back as October the 12th, 1947, over these microphones, I revealed some of the facts sworn to under oath last Friday by James B. Carey, the Treasurer, Secretary of the CIO, that the red fifth column was using the very same secret weapons the Bund and the Nazis used. That is, our great constitution, plus some of our dirtiest politicians. And that, with the help of some American labor leaders, the Russians had already captured control of these American unions. Mr. Carey testified on Friday that the United Electrical Workers' Union, which he once headed, quotes, was a communist front on many questions. Ladies and gentlemen, I tried to warn you about that and similar communist-dominated unions to the limits of the law. But our federal courts have ruled that it is libel or slander to call anyone a communist. As a result, the blindfold of justice has been twisted into a gag for the press. A reporter's report to the nation, Washington. The Saturday Evening Post recently published an article by Kermit Roosevelt, which treated the notorious Grand Mufti with kid gloves. This article in the Saturday Evening Post practically cleaned him up. The Mufti, it said in effect, isn't the criminal I say he is. Well, our government is now in possession of a diary kept by the late von Ribbentrop, Hitler's foreign minister. It reveals that von Ribbentrop personally paid the Grand Mufti 80,000 marks every month. This document is now in the war crimes file number NG5461. NG, meaning Nishvut. The Defense Department. One of the biggest boners in all American history was recently discovered just in time. Our newest and our biggest bombers, the B-50s and the B-36s, were built, get this, were built without provision to carry atomic bombs. In short, while we were getting very tough with Russia, the United States had only three atomic B-29s, the very same planes that ended the war in Japan. How do you like that? Washington, in answer to the Moscow charge that the United States detained Mrs. Kasankina, another diplomatic bombshell is about to explode. The United States will retaliate by charging that FDR's personal representative, Raoul Wallenberg, was kidnapped in 1945 by Russian agents in Hungary, and he hasn't been heard of since. Attention all strike leaders. This is to remind all who strike that conditions aren't so bad in our capitalistic United States because the socialist government of Great Britain threatened to break the British transportation strike with the Royal Navy, and in communist Russia, all strikes are stopped at once by the firing squad. Think that over. Knoxville, Tennessee. 
A few years ago, at the bitterest point of our disagreement, I defended Senator Burton K. Wheeler's right to free speech after hoodlums in the West threw eggs at him. I disagree with Henry Wallace as much as I disagreed with ex-Senator Wheeler, but I believe in his right and mine of free speech. It is both un-American and unnecessary. At this time, I was doing the Winchell program, which started, I believe, in 1932, and I was with the Winchell for 16 years. And I would say that of all the programs that uh, current at that time, that, with certain ups and downs, was the leading broadcast. At the height of its popularity, 9 o'clock Sunday night was an absolute ritual for people. They'd stop their bridge, they'd get home from visiting other people, you had to hear that 15 minutes. Heads fell, reputations rolled, stocks declined, potentates trembled. Winchell's power was so great when he was at his peak. But vitone-enriched Jergens face cream will. Although both Jergens and Ben Grauer had been associated with Winchell's radio program since 1932, he would change sponsors and announcers in the new year. Skin smoother called finer than lanolin itself. Once more, you get a complete facial in one jar of Jergens face cream. All-purpose Jergens face cream is a cleanser, a softener, a dry skin cream, and a powder base. Yet Jergens face cream enriched with precious vitone costs no more than ordinary creams. 15 cents to a dollar and a quarter a jar plus tax. So get your jar of Jergens face cream today and start having the kind of skin women envy and men love. Next week, another edition of the Jergens Journal with Walter Winchell. And now be sure to remain tuned for Luella Parsons' 15-minute program featuring as guest Gary Cooper, which follows immediately. This is Ben Grauer speaking. How did uh, our Miss Brooks come along? Well, they had made a couple of recordings with a couple of other actresses. Mm. I believe Joan Blondell was one. And they didn't feel she was right, and Shirley Booth was one. So they asked me to do it, and uh, I held very little hope for it. But they said, we'd like to put it on as a summer replacement. And I said, well, then you're going to have to do it right fast because I'm going to New York. So we taped all of them very mm -hmm. fast. And I got to New York and at the end of my stay there, Frank Stanton said, congratulations. He was the president of mm -hmm. CBS. Mm -hmm. And I said, what for? And he said, you're the number one show on the air, which astounded me. So then we went into fall production. Now we'll just tap this water pipe here. Oh, be careful, Mr. Conklin. Please. Miss Brooks. I know motors backwards. One more good tap should do it. That did it all right. Well, let's get out and push, folks. We're off to the nearest garage. At 9.30 p.m., Eve Arden took to the air an hour Miss Brooks from K&X in Los Angeles. The show debuted during the summer, and by September, they'd found sponsorship with Paul Mollett. What? Why, how did? Why, who On Halloween, Connie Brooks Why? took a trip to the Clay City football game, hoping for some alone time with Philip Boynton on the car ride over. She wasn't so lucky. He's my principal. Oh, now calm down, Mr. Conklin. Remember, everything's all right now. We're off to Clay City. What 
Where do you figure we are now, Miss Brooks? Well, I think According we're... to my calculations, we've been traveling due east on Route 94 for one hour and ten minutes at an approximate mean speed of 40 miles per hour. Any tailwind, Mr. Conklin? <laughs> oh, look, we're, we're coming into a town. Of course we're coming to a town, just as I figured. This is it. Uh, Miss Brooks, ask that pedestrian where the stadium is. What pedestrian? Hey, look where you're driving! Oh, that pedestrian! Uh, pardon me, could you tell us where the Clay City Stadium is? Well, I can't be positive, but my guess would be Clay City. Uh, isn't this Clay City? No, no, this is Boonville. If you'd be kind enough to give me a lift home, though, I could show you where Clay City is. I live just a few miles from there in Flagden. Well, there really isn't much room. We've got three in front and three in back now. Well, it's not much of a ride from here. Perhaps I could sit on this gentleman's lap. What? Sit on my lap? Oh, better take him, dear. We've only got a short time if we want to see the kickoff. Oh, very well. Come on. I hope I'm not too heavy. <laughs> Sorry, I'll change my position. <laughs> Stop the car, Miss Brooks. All right, Mr. Conklin. And this time we're really off to Clay City. Yeah, thanks a lot for the lift. You're welcome. Now, how do we get to Clay City from here? Oh, that's 29 miles back down the road. We passed through it on the way. What? Why, you... It's so long. You... 29 miles back... Why, that, we could have been... He said that it was only... Daddy, remember your blood pressure. His ears get awful red, don't they? (laughs) Now, see here, everybody. We've got to organize this expedition. There's been no unity of command, that's the trouble. Everybody's talking at once. (laughs) Shut that toad up, Boynton. He's not a toad, Mr. Conklin. MacDougall's a frog. A giant bullfrog with tonsils. Quiet, quiet, Mr. Brooks. Now turn this car around and go that way, and don't stop going that way until I tell you to. Off to Clay City. Well, this is Clay City, all right. There's the Clay City National Bank, Clay City Lumberyard. Now, for heaven's sake, Miss Brooks, before you get lost again, ask somebody where the stadium is. All right, Mr. Conklin. Oh, there's a bus parked over there. I'll ask the driver. Excuse me, but could you tell me where the Clay City Stadium is? Sure, it's four blocks left and three right. Oh, thanks a lot. That's the first definite answer I've had all day. Well, I ought to know where the stadium is. I got the Clay City team in this bus. We just beat Madison High 89 to nothing. (laughs) 89 to nothing? May I ask you one more question? Sure, what is it? Did they put up a good fight? This episode had a rating of 13.5. Steve Arden, as our Miss Brooks, returns in just a moment. But first... Dream girl, dream girl, beautiful luster cream girl. Tonight, show him how... For a deeper look at our Miss Brooks, listen to Breaking Walls, episode 106. Only luster cream brings you K. Dumas' magic formula blend of secret ingredients...
May 1st, 1835. It's a cold and rainy moving day. Every renter in New York is out on the street looking for a lodging. Most of the city's quarter million live below Houston Street in buildings, four stories or smaller. But construction is booming. Rich and ragged with furniture, wagons, carts, drays, ropes, canvases, straw packers, porters, and beer haulers. White, yellow, and black occupy the streets from east to west, north to south. Everyone I spoke to on this subject complained of this custom as most annoying, but all assured me it was unavoidable for renters. More than one of my New York friends have bought or built houses solely to avoid this annual inconvenience. New people are pouring onto New York's dangerously overcrowded streets by the thousands. It seemed to me that the city was fine before some awful calamity. I said, Colonel, what in heaven is the matter? Everyone was pitching out their furniture and packing it up. He laughed and said this was the general moving day. Seemed kind of a frolic, as if they were changing houses just for the fun. Eh, so the well goes. It would take a good deal to get me out of my log house. But yeah, I understand many persons move each year. Rich and poor, many come to earn an honest living. Others, for more nefarious reasons. And it's the perfect place to begin. Coming soon, Burning Gotham. A new scripted audio fiction series about the fastest growing city in the world. And the opportunists who shaped it. To find out more, please subscribe to this audio feed or go to burninggotham.com. p.m. is considered the final hour of primetime. NBC broadcast the game show Take It or Leave It with MC Gary Moore. It would later be called the $64,000 question. CBS broadcast Lum and Abner. NBC won the rating time slot 13.4 to 10.4. At 10.30 p.m. from New York, opposite the Horace Heights show on NBC, WCBS broadcast Cabin B-13. Written by John Dixon Carr, it starred Arnold Moss as Dr. Fabian, who solved mysteries on a cruise along the coast of France and through the Mediterranean to the Near East. It was directed by John Dietz. Cabin B-13. My name is Fabian, ship surgeon of the luxury liner Moravania. Tonight, as we lie alongside the docks at the great port of Southampton, the ship is ghostly, deserted, 
Our passengers on this world cruise have gone to London. And as I sit here in my cabin, B-13, I'm reminded how the tides and storms of a thousand voyages have wrought nothing more strange, more sinister than man's desire for adventure in the strange ports and lands we touch. I remember Bill and Brenda Leslie. It was years ago before the war, and the effect on their characters of the mortal terror that overtook them in London. CBS brings you John Dixon Carr's famous Dr. Fabian, ship surgeon, world traveler, and host in Cabin B-13 for strange and incredible tales of mystery and murder. Directed by John Dietz. The series debuted as a summer replacement for Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, but by Halloween it had moved to 10.30. What it lacked in audience, it made up for with supremely talented New York radio actors. down to the river, quiet little hotel. So dingy with its stuffiness of old carpets and yesterday's tea trays, it should never suspect how fashionable it is. Or how expensive. Can't you hear the lift whining as its two latest arrivals, the husband American, the wife English, go swaying up to a bumpy stop? This way, sir. Come on, Brenda. Will there be anything else, sir? Uh, that's all, thanks. Oh, wait a minute. Here. Oh. Thank you, sir. Bill, darling, please don't look so bewildered. Was I looking bewildered? I know the furniture's red plush and dates back to the 1860s. I know we can't get a private bathroom. By George, the waiters look as old as the furniture. But if only we'd gone to Claridge's or the Savoy or any one of a dozen places I suggested. But darling, you don't understand. No? Who the devil wants to go to Claridge's or the Savoy? This is London. Oh, Bill... I'm afraid I still don't understand. I've been in the diplomatic service for seven years. I've been stationed in three capitals, but I've never been here. It's a lovely old town. Oh, it's home. Uh, it's home to me, too, in a way. It's put a spell on my imagination ever since I was a boy so high. Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Fu Manchu, handsome cabs rattling through the fog. Darling, you don't think we still ride about in handsome? No, but it's the spirit of the thing. Here, look out of this window. Yes. Gray and black buildings. Twilight coming down. And yes, look down there. Where? I don't see anything. It's one of your famous barrel organs. Here, let's have the window up. It's under our windows, Brenda. What's the tune, dear? Do you know it? Oh, something about she was a lassie from Lancashire. <laughs> it's a very old one. But it's right, don't you see? Everything's right. And if I crane out of the window sideways like this, I can see down to the river. That's where the bodies fall off walls and the police launchers go out. Oh, Bill, please listen to me. Yeah. Put your arms around me. Look down at me. There. I have a funny face. I admit I have a funny face. I love you terribly, Bill. <laughs> I don't mean any words like very much or a lot. Just silly and terribly. But of all the romantic Americans I've ever met, you have the most absurd and fantastic ideas about England. You don't really expect to find Scotland Yard men in bowler hats trailing you every step. 
Now, do you? That wasn't the point, Brenda. I only When you think that... about it, just remember the barrel organ. Safe, stodgy, comfortable. That's London, Bill. Will you remember? Well, at least they've got telephones in this place. Hello? Mr. William Leslie. Yes, speaking. This is the reception desk, Mr. Leslie. Uh, there's a, a, a man here who insists on seeing you. Uh, in fact, the man is on his way upstairs. Uh, he's a police officer. Uh, what did you say? A police officer, sir. A police officer, huh? I see. Uh, he isn't by any chance from Scotland Yard. Yes, sir. I thought you might like to know. Did you hear that, Brenda? Yes, I heard it, but surely... About six hours in England Oh, this is ridiculous, Bill. There must be some mistake. Well, there probably is. All the same, come to think of it, I don't feel very keen about facing one of these bowler hats in real life. But why do they come to us? We haven't done anything. Nothing I can think of. That's what worries me. Get ready for the hat and the raincoat and the cropped mustache. Yes? Mr. Leslie... Mrs. Leslie? That's right. Won't you come in? Thank you. Sorry to have to trouble you, sir. I'm a police officer. Metropolitan CID. Here's my warrant card. I see. Chief Inspector... Radford, sir. And I'm bound to tell you I'm here about a pretty serious matter. But we haven't done anything to... Easy, Brenda, easy. Sit down, Inspector. Thank you, sir. Now, don't mind my notebook. It's a mere formality. You and your wife arrived this morning by the Mauravania. Your wife is British and carries her own passport, correct? Yes, that's correct. A week from today, you leave by the same ship for Lisbon. At Lisbon, you take up a new diplomatic assignment at the American Embassy. Correct? Yes, yes just, I just one moment. I'd like you to look at this snapshot I have here. Who is it? But it's Bill. I, I mean, well, except for that awful shirt and tie... It is, Bill. So help me, I never had that picture taken. I know you didn't, Mr. Leslie. That's Flash Morgan. Ever hear of him? Never. Is he wanted for something? He's wanted for several murders. We won't mention bank robbery. Also, he's a ripper, if you know what that means. He uses a razor and likes it. Cabin B-13 went off the air at 11 p.m., ending Halloween 1948's primetime with it. Well, what strikes me, Bob Chart, those figures that you just read from the city of Philadelphia... It's very obvious that if Mr. Truman has a chance of winning this election this evening, that he must carry the big city centers by overwhelming majorities, as the late President Roosevelt did for his four terms. However, your figures from Philadelphia show that in this normally big, overwhelming Democratic city, President Truman is leading Governor Dewey by only 2,000 votes. Well, that would seem to indicate at this early hour that as Governor Dewey piles up his outstate majority, as outstate Pennsylvania always goes Republican, that while the figures are not definite as yet, 
we may count on Pennsylvania being in the Republican column when the votes are counted definitely this evening. Another point, too, it's clear even this early this evening in the election returns how little real practical political effect the new third and fourth political parties are having in this race for president. On Tuesday, November 2nd, 1948, the United States held its 41st presidential election. If you'd been tuned into the results early in the evening, you'd have been convinced that the pre-election polls were correct and Thomas E. Dewey would become the next president. You'd have been wrong. Thomas Dewey ran a low-risk campaign. His advisors believed all he had to do to win was avoid major mistakes. So Dewey spoke in platitudes, avoided controversial issues, and was vague on what he planned to do as president. But many Republicans disliked Dewey, feeling he was too cold and stiff, and surprisingly against outlawing the Communist Party. Believing he had nothing to lose, Harry Truman ran a feisty campaign. He ridiculed Dewey's platitudes and claimed communists were rooting for a GOP victory to ensure another Great Depression. Energizing traditional Democrats as well as Catholic and Jewish voters, Truman also fared surprisingly well with Midwestern farmers. When it was all over, Harry Truman's victory was considered one of the greatest election upsets in American history, garnering 303 electoral votes to Thomas Dewey's 189. We have uh, obtained the results from the state of Ohio, which assures victory for President Truman and Senator Barkley. With Ohio's 25 electoral votes, President Truman and Senator Barkley will have a total of 266 votes in the Electoral College. This is the minimum figure necessary for victory. This figure, however, does not take into consideration the very favorable trends still developing in California, Colorado, Idaho, and Nevada. The final Truman-Barkley total will reach and exceed 279 electoral votes. It marks a tremendous victory for American labor. For to the organized political efforts of Amer the American labor movement, much credit for this victory must be given. But it was not labor alone which brought about this democratic victory. Tribute must be paid to the thousands of democratic workers who labored long and hard to get out the vote. And most of all, tribute for this victory must be paid to all the American people, working men, farmers, professional men, and civil servants, businessmen, and the millions of housewives who helped swell the Democratic vote. They showed that they are politically alert and completely able to judge candidates and political parties on their record of performance. The American people have shown what they want. They have given the Democratic Party a challenge. The Democratic Party will live up to its great trust. With simultaneous success in the 1948 congressional elections, the Democrats also regained control of both houses of Congress, which they lost in 1946. The next day, Harry Truman spoke in Independence, Missouri. Thank you, Mr. Mayor and my uh, fellow townsmen and citizens of 
this great county named after Andrew Jackson. I can't tell you how very much I appreciate this turnout to celebrate a victory, not my victory, but a victory of the Democratic Party for the people. I want to inform you, Mr. Mayor, that protocol goes out the window when I'm an independent. I'm a citizen of this town and a taxpayer, and I want to be treated just like the rest of the taxpayers in this community are treated, whether you extend the city limits or not. Now, I thank you very much indeed for this celebration, which is not for me, it's for the whole country. It, it's for the whole uh, world, for the simple reason that you've given me a tremendous responsibility. Now, since you've given me that responsibility, I want every single one of you to help carry out that responsibility for the welfare of this great republic and for the welfare and peace of the world at large. And I'm sure that's what you're going to do. I can't begin to thank the people who are responsible for the Democratic Party winning this great election. Of course, I'm indebted to everybody for that win. And I'll have to just say to every single one of you individually that I'm going to do the very best I can to carry out the Democratic platform as I promised to do in my speeches over this country. And we have a Congress now, and I'm sure we'll make some progress in the next four years. Thank you all. Our coverage of Halloween and Election Day 1948 is now behind us. So what's on the horizon, you ask? What else? Hello there. Well, are you just uh, pushing your chair away from the table, or are you just pushing your chair up to the table? <laughs> pushing the food in. <laughs> well, happy Thanksgiving to you all. It's time for happy homes, and uh, what a treat you have in store for you today. Here's Norma Young. Come on in. Hello, and how are you all? Well, you know, I told you last week that we were going to again have a visitors, two visitors, and I'm very, very happy to have them. But before I present them to you, I do have something else that I want to tell you. You know, to paraphrase the song that we hear very, very often, somebody's coming to my house, well, may I say... The reading material used in today's episode was Sunday Nights at 7 by Jack and Joan Benny, On the Air by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings 1932-53 by Jim Ramsberg. WOR Radio 1922-1982. As well as articles from the archives of the Los Angeles Times, the New York Daily News, the New York Times, Radio Daily, and the Saturday Evening Post. On the interview front, Eve Arden, Jack Benny, Alice Fay, Phil Harris, Elliot Lewis, Brett Morrison, and Lorene Tuttle were with Chuck Shaden, 
Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Hans Conried, Howard Duff, and June Havoc were with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these at goldenage-wtic.org. Dick Joy spoke with John Dunning for 71KNUS, while Ben Grower spoke with Westinghouse in 1970. Selected music featured in today's episode was Dance Macabre by Camille Saint-Saëns, I'll Take Manhattan by Blossom Deary, Ghost Bus Tours by George Fenton, The Look of Love by Nelson Riddle, 30's Macbeth Overture, conducted by Giuseppe Sinopoli, Flag of Columbia by Jacqueline Schwab, and Over the River and Through the Woods by the U.S. Air Force Band. Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the new audio drama set in 1835 New York City. It will be available everywhere you get your podcast and at burninggotham.com. A special thank you to Ted Davenport and Jerry Hendages, two radio show collectors who helped supply material for this episode. They're who the large retailers go to. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. And for Jerry, please visit otrsite.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls Episode 109 will continue our miniseries on the 1948-49 season by examining broadcasting business and programming on Thanksgiving 1948. This episode will be available beginning November 1st, 2020, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash the Wallbreakers. And support this show for as little as one buck a month at patreon.com slash the Wallbreakers. So until November 1st, 2020, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 108, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much, and happy Halloween.